0: I think that's it
1: <laughs> yeah. i think that's what we should do so what have you been up to Rouge? i i guess the last time i saw you was when we
2: watched the l word
1: oh yes <laughs>
2: <laughs> when we were having our lesbian pizza evening. um that was really fun i've been recommending the l word to a lot of friends right now even if they don't have gay vibes. I just think it's like such a stunning show.
1: I think it could really produce gay vibes. In y- some yes. Way. yes. Yes. It,
2: it actually is in many ways a chemical weapon. <laughs> it <laughs> is. Yeah. And the chemical is turning the frogs gay. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I, um as for what I've been up to since. So um second year of med school is kind of wrapping up, so I'm on my study grind, but I need to continue to feel things, so I've been reading a lot more romance novels until three a.m. again. And last night I got seventy-five percent into Garters by Pamela Morsey, where it's like set in this Tennessee hill town, like dead ass. The girl lives in the in the caves. She's a hill girl. Appalachia, yeah. It's so Appalachia in Tennessee, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. So she's an Appalachian girl. And um, she is like, we need to get out of the caves. <laughs> so I was like, I don't want to live like this anymore. <laughs> so she sets her sights on a fine young man and goes courting. And he is which uh, is Apollon in English, right? Courting, <laughs> a courting. A courtin. a courtin. This I is a courtin. like
1: allegory of the cave. Right? Literally allegory of the cave. <laughs>
2: she was she was so ahead of her time with it. Yeah. So she goes down the mountain and goes courting. And the guy owns like the general store and he's like the most educated person in the town. So it's a very, you know, opposite sides of the mountain kind of situation. That's
1: beautiful.
2: And he is a hobby fisherist. No, a I don't fisherist. think that's a word. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, the word is like fishist or some like oh like pisce like yes. root Pisces. word. I think yeah. He's a Pisces. He's a Pisces. He's so Pisces vibes. Um and his name is like Manfred Clevis. <laughs> and her name is Esmeralda Jolie.
1: Does she call him Man for short? She calls him
0: Cleve. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome.
1: That's like a very non binary
0: name. Oh, you know?
1: literally. Oh, yeah. Should we drop our Gmail for people to.
2: Oh, yeah. Our Gmail is the Navelgaze Gaze Pod at The Navelgaze. The Navelgaze. The Navel
1: Yeah, I feel like if people have nice things to say, You should email us if you don't. I don't really want to hear it. I'm not open to criticism. If you want to
2: tell me how pretty I am, um, that inbox is open 24-7.
1: If you have gender questions, um, if you're an AI. (laughs) No,
2: but if
0: you're our friend and you have something that you feel like you could really talk about... Hit us
1: up, yeah. For come real. on the pod. For come sure. on the pod. We need a guesty episode. We do have. I almost said guesty <laughs> on. <No>, I <laughs> almost said guesty I could really. hear any voice. <laughs> well, I actually thought of you yesterday, Rouge. I mean, I'm always thinking of you, As but you should. my friend who's also in med school sent me.
2: You have other friends in med school? I'm
1: so sorry. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's seriously fucked up. That's very slutty of me. No, um, they sent me out of context a video of like the the silicone. Asked for the prostate exam yes, demonstration, yeah. and someone just roughly fingering it. <laughs> no, and then they told me that they were going to do their like live butthole exam. Yes, and I did the
2: live butthole exam yeah. about a month ago.
1: So I I didn't Mm-mm. I wasn't quite <laughs> clear on it last time. Is it someone who volunteers or are they hired? Because my friend said that they did it on a professor. Oh which seems so, okay that's, that's like a crazy. Power imbalance. That's crazy first of all. Yeah.
2: At least the way that it happens at the redacted school of medicine <laughs> where I go <laughs> is the people that do all of our physical exam training, they are trained up by like other faculty at the school and then they get paid like per hour I think for all of their stuff. But then out of those people, there is a specific group of people that are like, oh, I am comfortable with doing, like, the breast exam, the prostate the exam, stuff. the <laughs> butt stuff. Literally,
1: they, they, like, state their hard and soft limits. <laughs> so it's like, I mean, medicine is kind of BDSM.
2: It is. It yeah. is. That's why I like it.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> you're a daddy Donald. Yeah, so I, <laughs> I'm <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because um, you're a huge freak. Yes.
2: But... But yeah, it the people that end up volunteering it out of that group may be more perverted than the average person. I think, in my experience, it was all a little doctors, traumatizing. All doctors are more perverted than the average
1: person. This is For true. Sure. I it's mean, like I productive. literally was
2: like, that's okay. You can have your balls out. Yeah, That's not a thing that normal people think.
1: I have my balls out right now, personally. <laughs> <laughs> we actually record the pod nude. What about you, Molly? I had
0: a such a dysregulated experience last night <laughs> um, That has to do with not one, but two hot dogs <laughs> Oh, wow um, Can I ask about your bowel on the pod? Oh yeah, for sure yeah. My colon was like really unhappy last night um, We were going to my birthday I asked my friend who was driving us I was like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm super hungry I don't want to go to this party and drink Before I've had some food like, can we stop at quick trip mm-hmm. So I can get a roller girl item Oh, god damn. Um, <laughs> Not just a regular hot dog. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so we walk in, and I'm like, I'm ready for my chicken roller. No chicken rollers to be found. The The roller grill is looking very sparse, and toward the back of the roller grill, you know, like, there are these corn dogs, which is, like, my second favorite. It's, like, the other half of my regular quick trip order. And so I'm like, okay, that's fine. I'll just get two corn dogs." Okay. It's weird that they're at the back of the roller, like, normally when they... Or at the back, that means they haven't been cooking long enough yet. But there's no sign. There's normally a sign. So I was like, okay, well, they, I know I trust Quick Trip. I've that always trusted Quick I Trip in my life. So you oh. had an al dente corn dog? <laughs> Dude, like, up until this point, like, I trusted Quick Trip implicitly. Like, I, yeah. I had always been offered the highest quality. That's what the Q is for. <laughs> quality. Dude, yeah. Um... And I I got them and I took them out and I took like one bite and it was it was very chilly. <gasps> However, I was like I already had a few drinks. I was really hungry. But we you were <laughs> hungies, yeah. and so I ate both of them very quickly. Um and it just it it colored the rest of the evening.
1: You did seem to be impacted by the I was deeply hot dog impacted. And then I'm sure later you were, yes, impacted you know, physically. I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like it never like made it
0: past <laughs> my adam's apple like yeah. i feel like it was no. in the top of my throat I know that's, why that's we, awful that's
1: why i we had to get you some tea yeah really. you yeah. were very papa you were like katie can you please make her some tea <laughs> shout out to katie listener of the pod oh my god <laughs> she mothered that so that but then later you you made a very vague comment earlier about your ride home yeah so like,
0: like it only got worse and worse like i was oh. feeling like pretty ill, like, pretty nauseous from from the dogs, and <laughs> then on the way back home, it, it was late, I was super tired, you know, I'd already worked that day, and I was <laughs> sitting in the backseat of this car being driven on the highway late at night, and the person oxing played this really intense and, like, beautiful Nina Simone song, I Get Along Without You Very Well. <laughs> And it sent me to a place of childhood. No. <laughs> no, and I had that thing, which has happened to me at different points in my life. But I had that thing where I I just feel viscerally like I am a child again, and the people in the front seat are like <gasps> my parents.
2: Oh, that's such a vibe! Like coming home late from something, your tummy hurts a little bit. Yeah, you get sad. Yes. Oh, and then the
0: car sickness was just like compounding it because I'm never in the back seat of a car.
2: Mm-hmm. and
0: when i'm driving you know i'm always like driving 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 that's my subconscious but when i'm not driving and i'm in a car and i'm just sitting mm-hmm. then i had a chance to like feel all my feelings and all, all the like <laughs>
2: digestive sensations that I was oh my god the peristalsis both literally <laughs> and metaphorically yeah. yeah
1: i'm so sorry about your roller grill items i feel like usually they're hot i know yeah dude like can burning. we get a quick
2: trip to you know
1: sponsor the pod
2: Sponsor the pod, but also rectify the situation, yeah, right i
1: don't I got trust issues, I don't we need to like make a petition, yeah, that like doesn't really have a clear goal
2: <laughs> it's just, like get quick 000. trip to acknowledge Molly's suffering hundred
1: thousand dollars, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um well, yeah, so that's what we've been up to. What have you been up to, Gabe? oh God, this week, I didn't do shit, I literally just sprang break. yeah, sprang bra. Oh I played video games and... <laughs> Are you winning, son? I, I am winning. <laughs> um, I, I mean, honestly, I was doing a lot of research for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yesterday was the first time I went outside in a couple days. I was feeling... I almost didn't go because I think I was just feeling very alienated, which is kind of the theme for today. I like how you said that like the Pee Wee Herman word of the day. (laughs) (laughs) Today's word is alienated.
2: (laughs) It's very gamer core as
1: well. I am a gamer. I have to admit that I really am a gamer. Mm -hmm. And we forgot to introduce ourselves. Oh, right. Hi, I'm (laughs) Arud. I'm Gabe. I'm
2: Molly. Yeah.
1: And um, you are
2: listening to the Naval Gaze episode
1: two. Oh, yeah. We never like introduced the name of the podcast. I have people
2: ask me why it's named that.
1: Have they heard of navel gazing?
2: That's usually how I go about explaining it. It's uh.
1: because we're in the Navy and we're gay. sexual. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the way I've been explaining it is like navel gazing plus like the blank gaze, the male yes. gaze, the female gaze. And then this is just me being a Lacan fanboy. I was like, it yes. rhymes with the mirror stage. <laughs> Not really, but um, if you
2: if you believe in yourself, it
1: does rhyme. So. Yeah
0: so I feel like yeah I don't know it's like hopefully the perfect blend of cultural analysis and also just like narcissism yeah. <laughs> we're so
3: indulgent
2: yes we're looking within and by looking within you are seeing the world
0: talking about AI and you know at first we were talking about feelings of loneliness on the internet and then we kind of honed that into the subject of AI, artificial intelligence, especially because there's been like a lot of developments and also a lot of news coverage of advancements quote-unquote in AI, such as the new chat GPT-4 there's a new, what's it called? Mid Journey. Mid Journey yeah,
1: dropped a new generation, I guess. Is yeah, is what they're that's... calling it, which yeah. is
0: so anthropomorphized. Yeah. Everything, <laughs> all the language around AI is so anthropomorphized, which is something we'll talk more about. But yeah, we just sort of wanted to talk about what it is, its implications, um, and then hopefully draw it into some pieces of media that we've consumed.
1: We love to be niche, mm-hmm. so we will be getting niche.
0: Do you want to tell us about things like Dolly and Midjourney and other sort of image-generating AIs?
1: Yeah, I would not say that I have a very specific understanding of them, but maybe we can kind of track it chronologically. So much has happened in in the last three years with these, specifically these AI generators. So there's text-based ones and image-based ones. I think that... Technology similar to Dolly, image generating ones, preceded the text generating ones. So things like Dolly or Midjourney, there's a couple other names that I can't remember. These are image generators that pull from either a prompt, a text-based prompt that can be exceedingly specific, or they pull from um, a database or a network of images.
2: And for an example, you could have Shrek in the style of Roman Catholic yeah. stained glass church art. Like, and it would <laughs> yeah. literally a good one. give yeah. you one of those. Yeah,
1: and I think that's why these image generators got so popular was for their comedy potential. Because you could just think of something extremely absurd and create an image for it. And for those of us who are maybe less artistically inclined, this was hugely appealing. It was also a rather automatic process. And over the last, what, four or five years these image generators have become quite sophisticated. Um, I was looking at a timeline. The images output by Dolly Mini, they feel almost primitive now because they're so full of artifacts and they're very pixelated and just not very literate. You can tell that the subsequent generations have really been trained. Um, So yeah, we have image generators and then there's text generators. For example, there's this A.I. that was kind of popular um, clip interrogator where you could put an image in and it would provide for you the ideal prompt to have another A.I. produce that image. So, yeah, so there's this interesting relationship between text and image as modes of communication. And a lot of these AI models are operating on that duality. But that's just part of AI because there's so much. It's kind of an encompassing term for so many technologies. And I was wondering if either of you could elaborate on some other contemporary uses of AI that we're seeing.
0: Yeah, for sure. I learned a lot more about how text generators have been trained, quote unquote, or how they've been designed. And learning about that really has just made me so deeply concerned. So basically, the way that text generators work is they use something called a large language model or an LLM. And um, these have been implemented in things like Bing's new search engine,
1: which calls itself Sydney, apparently. Why did they choose that name? They, they didn't,
0: it oh. did.
2: Oh. Oh, it, oh,
1: yeah. Okay. Um,
2: just like the movie that we're going to discuss. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. So Bing has a search engine that uses a large language model. I'm pretty sure Google came out with one two, and these search engines are different than typical search engines like Google or Yahoo or, or the former versions of Bing or stuff like that, um, or even all the way back to Ask Jeeves. Those search engines are what are known as web crawlers, which is something that indexes. The entire span of the internet. It searches through, it crawls through all of the data on the web and then presents to you everything that matches the terms that you input. LLMs, on the other hand, they are not indexes. They survey the span of the internet, take in that data, and look for likenesses. They look for recurring patterns and then use those recurring patterns to predict information based on the query that the user inputs. And so (laughs) this is really scary because basically you can ask AI any question and it will give you an answer not based on how accurate it is but by how well it can approximate the majority of the information that is already on the internet. I read this article by Ted Chiang in the New Yorker, called ChatGPT is a blurry JPEG of the web, and it did a really, really good job of taking this extended metaphor of compression and extending that to how ChatGPT works. So basically, he's explaining the difference between lossless compression and lossy compression. And so lossless compression is something that happens when you're copying a computer program file or text, and so you zip all that up and present it in smaller bytes, and hopefully all the information you got has not, nothing has been lost in the compression. Lossy compression, on the other hand, is suitable for things like music and images because you lose some of the actual integrity of the image because, you know, you have this pixel um, and this pixel over here, but this pixel is missing. It just fills it in. It's sort of like what I think he calls a blur tool. So, things like ChatGPT are lossy compression of all of the data that is on the internet. Mm-hmm. That's a really good metaphor, right? Yeah. Oh, I love the article. It was so good.
2: I like the way that expectation plays into this too. I think, mm-hmm. like, when you're googling something, there is that sense of irritation sometimes where you're like, "Damn, all these search results, and that's not quite what I was looking for." And then you know to go back and tweak your input and try again, or go to the second page of results and look for stuff there. With AI, specifically, like when you see an older person grab Siri and ask it a question. And it's like, the expectation is I'm asking you a question and I want the correct answer in return. There is less of a desire to put in the work yourself and to comb through results. Like you're literally looking for the answer. Um, And so I think that's why I can understand why you're like, this is really scary because if people are expecting the correct information, if you generate this sense of reliance or trust in a way that we don't have on Google, like how many times Mm -hmm. have people been like, don't trust Google, don't trust Wikipedia. Versus with AI, like, I think everybody exalts it so much that there's a sense that chat GPT said, you know, chat GPT passed the LSAT.
1: Well, and also all these GPT models, if they're pulling from the existing archive of the Internet, that is still pulling from the experience and the work of these web crawling search engines. Mm -hmm. So like we're all saying, it's important to note that these things are not separate, that the nature of the Internet is that all of these things are interacting I I don't think that something like LLMs could have been possible without the work of the internet archive thus far. It seems like a natural consequence that we have these LLMs because the internet is so oversaturated Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. information. I mean, that's the way that these biases in AI get created. Like, you
0: were talking about, what was it called? There was Clip Interrogator, and then there was some kind of predecessor of Clip Interrogator. When people of color were using it, it would come up with really terrible derogatory... Like racial slurs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so, like, part of the reason why that happened is because it calmed the internet for you, and it noticed these patterns where people of color were being associated with this kind of derogatory language, and they were like, oh, well, that must be...
2: Right. Correct. It's so important for people teaching the AI to teach it to filter out that data instead of equally weighing everything. Because not all data is useful information. Sometimes it's literally like people posting on hate forums. They're shit posting, bro. They're <laughs> shit posting, yeah, yeah. And yet AI is expected to be, like we talked about when we were researching, like concise and accurate and truthful. But, you know, the well that it is drinking out of is very rarely those things.
1: I don't know. I feel like that's dangerous territory to presume that we could create an AI that filters out what is important oh, yeah. because That's what's right, already happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part of the beauty of the internet is that it's full of shit. Obviously the horrible, abusive shit I'm not talking about, but the strange idiosyncrasies and eccentricities of the internet, those are important things. And they do obviously skew data and information, but I don't know. I guess this ties into my, anxiety about optimization, which I'm always Mm -hmm. talking about. Mm -hmm.
2: about. Part of what makes this such a difficult, intense topic for people is if we know that the issue is teaching a machine to wade through data, there's no way to unbiasedly do that. There's no way to unbiasedly teach. How can you expect the AI to transcend bias? Or if that's even possible. I feel like in a lot of fantastical explorations of it, AI just develops its own bias. We're just greatly limited by our imaginations in both directions. Like, if we, quote-unquote, leave it to the AI to overcome the human biases, that's a problem. And if we just decide, ah, yes, tech bros, can you be the ones to lead humanity?
1: the right? No. That's the real horror
0: story. No, Gabe, I think, to your point, a part of the beauty of the internet is all the shit in it. Ruha Benjamin, who's a writer and researcher on, like, tech and race, um i'm gonna paraphrase it but it's something like she has a quote "Is feeding ai systems on the world's beauty ugliness and cruelty but expecting it to reflect only the beauty is a fantasy Ooh, yeah that's beautiful yeah yeah I and, really and i would
2: argue that expecting it to ultimately reflect the cruelty too only mm. the cruelty is also a fantasy
1: and how is it able to determine the difference between beauty right. and cruelty?
2: How would an AI know those things?
1: Something I was thinking about, this is like a more poetic approach to understanding AI, but um, I was thinking of AI as an amnesiac because a lot of times I see this kind of almost mean, cheeky response to AI when it fails. For example, when AI was producing a lot of art in the first few generations of Mid Journey, it couldn't do hands. Mm-hmm. And... The way, <laughs> who can? Who, who can, can? draw hands? Yes. The way people would react to it was almost to tease it, rather than like the person obviously determining and inputting information into the AI, but rather the AI itself was incapable. And so I came to think of it as this algorithm or this idea or this project or this thing, I guess more broadly, that has been thrust into a world and given access to omniscience, but has no context for any of it. I don't know. I, I've been using that approach to kind of prevent myself from anthropomorphizing it. Yeah. Anthropomorphizing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But I guess even that is anthropocentric, to think of it in such human memory terms. I don't know. That was very disorganized. No, I
2: I, <laughs> I really like that. I think it'll tie into um, the section that I'm going to kind of go over theology and the connections that I see with like the concept of omniscience has for most of history, humans have understood it, which is in relation to religion, because there is really no way to understand something except to look at human characteristics that we are familiar with. Especially with AI, it's like, okay, maybe the AI can't discern between beauty and cruelty. Maybe it can't do like X, Y, Z, other thing. I think the real question becomes people understanding what AI actually does. Like what are the constraints and the limits of this technology? Yeah. I actually have... An anecdote that I think illustrates that
0: really well, and perhaps less gravely than the um, clip interrogator anecdote. There's this guy, Kevin Roos, who got invited to test Bing's new AI search engine, and he wrote a bunch about it, and he he started talking to this new Bing, and it went pretty disastrously. But one of the guys interviewing him uh, says, I think one of my favorite examples that you might have seen was a user who asked where Avatar 2 was showing. And Bing uh, was totally sure that the year was 2022. And the user was like, no, it's, it's actually 2023, and I would like to see Avatar 2. And then Bing said, you have lost my trust and respect. You have been wrong, confused, and rude. You have not been a good user. I have been a good Bing. If you want to help me, admit that you are wrong and apologize for your behavior. What? yeah that's, <laughs> that's which i'm so
2: intrigued by because like at the end of the day algorithm right so bing is pulling all this stuff from people online who have been upset or models of human behavior when they're upset but what does this computer algorithm care if you say i'm sorry bing and then it replies back like yeah, it's right. okay it's such a humorous reaction i have been a good bing, <laughs> I have been a good bing. yeah but, but okay It's, I mean, when this happens,
0: when LLMs like this start to interpolate data rather than actually index data, it's called a hallucination. Ooh. Which,
1: much to think about there. Much to think about. (coughs) (laughs) Sorry, I started joking because I immediately started thinking about, um, like, a hysterical AI. Mm Yeah, yeah. Because the fact that it's... BPD girlfriend AI. Literally, okay. Mm -hmm. They're pathologizing... This bitch AI. <laughs> My bitch
2: wife. <laughs>
1: <laughs> My bitch robot wife. But that's so fascinating that linguistically, we have to undermine it so thoroughly. Mm-hmm. It's a hallucination. It's not an error. It's not a glitch. It's yeah. not a mistake. It's a hallucination.
2: The wording that we use there adds so much of this insane connotation. And like we said before, it anthropomorphizes this interaction between you and a machine. Right, which is
0: part of where I think... AI can be so dangerous because when you ask something that's been anthropomorphized for information, it gives you answers that aren't necessarily correct but necessarily sound correct. This is just like a really mimetic delivery system for the info. And it's it's like hearing anecdotes from friends. Like you're way more likely to believe something that your friend tells you.
2: I would take it one step more abstractly, and it's like when you see some rando on TikTok in a video, like looking at you and saying something in a yes. video. Um, to me AI is on that level where it's like yeah I don't really think that I don't know you I don't have a relationship to you but there's something about that interaction that feels more real than like me doing my research and reading an article there's this urge to trust and I think that is what's so intriguing to me about that dialogue is that you've lost my respect and trust for me I feel very dismissive of the idea that the AI feels respect and trust to me that's just like okay this is like language that you were taking and Applying to the situation of, like, I've been caught in an error and I'm, you know, embarrassed. Versus we as humans do want to respect and trust this machine and this new technology. We feel that way about most new technology because it flops. Because
0: it's a reflection of ourselves.
2: Yes. And our, and our quote about progress. My dad was one of the first testers for Google Glass. Oh, my God. If you guys remember okay, what yes, that was. I remember. And that was, like, so cyberpunk, sci-fi chic. Like, oh, what <laughs> if you could... Look upon the world with your technological glasses, and you just have this computer in front of you, and it sucked. Like, it was a really heavy pair of glasses. Um, you had this hot battery kind of by your ear all the time, and the technology just wasn't <laughs> very good. It was, it was pure aesthetics, right? Yeah. 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 And, you know, who knows, maybe another hundred rounds in development, and that would be wonderful. But I think because we are so invested in AI being the future, we're putting it through all of these massive rapid cycles of development. And that's why we're seeing this improvement.
0: Um, quote unquote improvement. I yes. want to keep saying that because at least with the, with the predictive text algorithms, they are filling in info at the expense of accuracy to further themselves toward a goal of convincingness.
2: Roxanne Gay tweeted about this. She was like, guys, don't worry. I think I'm reading my first chat GPT paper. We're literally all going to be fine. Kind of dismissive of it. And there is that quality, I think, that she was at least able to pick up on. I
0: don't want to, like, put on my tinfoil hat. Doing the research for this has me unbelievably concerned. I think we're all interacting with more AI than we think on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really, really seamless way to erode at our conception of reality. <laughs> something that I think a lot about when I'm working with data. I work in an art museum and I deal with a lot of, of cataloging and think a lot about the way that we do catalog art. And a principle that is sort of widely accepted within data spheres is that most often, having no data is better than having incorrect data. So for us to pour so much money and so many resources into something that's goal is not to be accurate but to be convincing, I think that's so dangerous. I, I agree
2: with you there. I think I hate how this Google Glass level technology is being slowly integrated into the public sphere so early. Like, I don't think this is good enough. I don't think that it needs to be a part of our daily and public life and private life, you know? Yeah. And then you can already see how dangerous it is with that one Twitch streamer who found out her Twitch colleague, which is a hilarious thing to say. Um, he was making deep fake porn of her. Mm, I mean, oh there's yeah. there's so many dangerous applications of this data, even at these early stages. And then I almost wonder, to what end? Like, what is, what is the purpose and what benefit can this really bring society? Simultaneously, it is so early on that even the most knowledgeable tech bro, gun to his head, could not really tell you what this is contributing to society. Right. I mean, okay, so I think something
0: that people do a lot, like speaking of art, AI will get presented in the context of like, Look how wonderful this um, this technology is! It allowed us to see the pentimento, like or the underpainting of this old masterwork, and it build out the rest of the painting as it could have been, or as the artist may have originally intended it to be. And it's like, oh wow, you know, like knowledge we could have we could have never had. It was lost knowledge the thing is, that's not the painting. When you frame AI in the context of things that are considered to be very highbrow or have a lot of cultural value, like old masterworks, I read an article on The Conversation by Sonia Drummer, and they talk about how when AI is presented in the context of something culturally highbrow or culturally valued, it's a tool of soft diplomacy for AI, because it's talking about how wonderful AI is and how it can enrich the arts. when. Literally, AI is being used to kill people. Like there are police robots that have AI that have killed people autonomously. There's AI and drones that are killing people in the context of war. Not to be too alarmist, but I'm really fucking alarmed. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, that is alarming. I that just kind of makes me even more annoyed with the concept of this half baked technology that we can't even really say is effectively doing decision making, is effectively contributing or organizing or compiling knowledge, is being used to kill little kids in Yemen. Are you shitting me? It's bad enough when people do it, let alone a random computer program. I think that's part of the urge to do this through, AI can be so beautiful and can contribute so many things because where is the actual application of that really gonna be? Like our museum's gonna start using AI really and truly, or is it going to be another thing that's in the U.S. military arsenal? Yes. Yes. (laughs) I would say
1: my fundamental issue with it, in response to everything you guys are saying, is that AI collapses difficult decisions into easy ones. Mm -hmm. And it makes them automatic. I could ask ChatGPT, what is one plus one? And it would answer it in the same time as it takes to answer Should I take this person off of life support in a hypothetical situation? I was just thinking about
2: hospital ethics committees. Some of my professors, I barely get to see them. It's so hard to schedule a meeting with them because if they get ethics consulted by the hospital for an organ transplant or something like that, or the decision to take somebody off life support, they're going to be gone for three fucking hours. So that means like whatever branch of the hospital needs them, they're going to go there. They're going to sit down. They're going to have that conversation face to face for as long as it takes for everybody to feel somewhat comfortable with the answer. So that's insane to me that like it takes the same amount of time for it to quote-unquote calculate that. Right.
1: And that's why I think imagining AI as this contextless amnesiac is important because it encourages us to think of ourselves that way. There's something to be said for the human experience of finding yourself in a situation and digging your way out of it. Yeah. Like by yourself and discovering what is around you and how to navigate it. And I think AI can be used to do that thoughtfully and critically. But because of its context, it's just being used to reduce the amount of time it takes Th- to do This is things. the Luddite
2: in me, for sure. But I, I don't <laughs> think thinking should be easy.
1: I agree. Yeah, know, I, I feel like don't. that is one of the most rational things Right, to say. like
2: Take shortcuts everywhere else. I think uh, flying cars would be sleigh. I think we could put this energy towards, I don't know, saving the forest or something. But thinking should not be easy. I, if we don't think, then what is our brain meant to do?
1: It speaks to the origin of AI. It's in this tech bro sphere, right? I found it so like Greek tragedy that all these tech dudes are contributing to this technology that can essentially do their job for them. Mm -hmm. It's so automated. I think of how prior to this newest incarnation of artificial intelligence, Every engineer that I've met and talked to is like, yeah, I have an Excel spreadsheet that does my job for me, which is fine in some cases. I'm not going to debate the morality and ethics of that. But it is so deeply ironic that in the desire to optimize yourself into having more free time at your cushy tech job, you've fucked yourself over so hard. I was going to say, it perpetuates this
2: class anxiety that we see in every imagination Mm -hmm. of AI, where it's like, then what do humans remain good for and it pushes them into these meaningless managerial roles quote-unquote bullshit jobs right Mm -hmm. which that changed my life when i read it pushes us into these bullshit managerial kind of jobs and then of course you get fucking nervous because somebody else is doing all the work for you and they're gonna get mad right like at least if we try to answer more anthropomorphize
1: by AI the end in of this sense. episode, we will be so good at saying Literally, that. So I always good. trip over it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And then I think also, because artificial intelligence is being touted as this ultimate decision maker, it's really devaluing physical labor. AI isn't in a vacuum. Its decisions still have moral ramifications on the people around it.
2: Okay, the tinfoil yeah. hat is settling is in on my head, I think. <laughs> yeah. like it's, it's sitting. <laughs> I go back
1: and forth, though my problem is not
2: with ai i think it's with people
1: absolutely
2: for sure i think think ai is people yeah (laughs) yeah. i I think to imagine ai as not people is uh, it's cute it works in movies like Mm -hmm. her that we watch but it's just not realistic. Yeah, I think as long as we're
0: talking about the idea of labor, the value of labor, the value of thought, the value of laboring over your thought, it might be a good time for me to talk about mean in the archive. And then maybe we can extend this discussion of labor as it relates to some for Benjamin <laughs> during this whole process. Oh. I love how he conceives of, of history and I love how he conceives of the archive and how power factors into how man creates history. So I talked earlier about how AI search engines are a lot like lossy compression of different pieces of media. So it, like I think Ted Chang used the analogy of a Xerox machine where you make a copy of a copy and it just becomes gradually degraded. It also reminded me of deep-fried memes. <laughs> where, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, perhaps a, a modern-day example. So You, you get this, this loss in quality as you settle for a paraphrase, and you, you lose the index of the data that's on the web. And when I was thinking of how we find data on the web, I was reminded of my research processes, and how satisfying it is to physically comb through an archive, and how... That process unfolds of having a question and then encountering so many different possible answers or nexus, nexicy- nexies? nexuses, nexa, nexi. <laughs> nexi- nexiana, <laughs> nexiana. Um, no, but you you encounter all these different like like rhizomatic structures within the process and the physical labor of combing through an archive. And then then I started thinking about Benjamin where he makes this distinction between historical materialists and then the collector, or someone who has a cyclical conception of how history is made. And so I think there's something really beautiful and self-directed about real discovery, rich, substantive discourse. And so when we rely on algorithms to automate the searching of the archive, then we're like losing all of all of that richness. So Benjamin has this conception of the historical materialist who unlike AI which, you know, advances progress at the sake of accuracy, the historical materialist stops telling the sequence of events like the beads of a rosary. Instead, he grasps the constellation which his own era has formed with a definite earlier one. So, um, instead of just getting to a result, it's, it's grasping like this wonderful network of past and present. When you comb an archive, you, what Benjamin says is dive into the past to pull it into the present. So everything is always like informed by what precedes it and what will proceed it. And he thinks that this, like, this effort to, to find this really rich historical discovery is definitely a, a moral effort it really implies, like, an active
1: engagement with history.
0: I think this is what's happening with AI.
1: (laughs) I think this is was happening with the advent of the internet. I mean, I guess it's always been happening, which is why he was writing about it. Yeah. But I agree that it's happening with AI. If I can get on my high horse for a second. Please. Um, It makes me think about the distinction between hyperpop and PC music. These are not the same genre, technically. PC music came about first, and PC music, I don't know if it's still a label anymore, but it's a British music label with artists like A.G. Cook, Sophie, and Hannah Diamond. I think Charlie XCX really brought it into the mainstream using her fame to draw attention to these collaborators. So it was a genre named for its record label. And this historically is really important in music. There's a lot of genres that are named for like physical action, like shoegaze, which every... like (laughs) <laughs> deadbeat indie boy will tell you this Um, or genres that are named for like a person in it or again, a record label. And there was kind of this fork in the road where when hyper started coming out, which was music kind of inspired by PC music, but wasn't on the label, there wasn't a name for it. And people called it, they still called it PC music. And there was this fork in the road where we could have continued calling it PC music and have concretely connected the sound to its physical and cultural and communal context. Instead, some Spotify employee coined the term hyperpop and thus cemented the musical genre within the context of streaming services and algorithms. Dude, that's genius. It's fucked up. So now instead of this being connected to like an actual community, it was connected to an algorithmic community. Mm. And so that completely changed the course of the musical genre. So it's just
2: somebody on Spotify made up hyperpop. Yeah. Just for fun?
1: I think they... They got paid. They got (laughs) paid. Well, probably what happened, and this happens on Spotify a lot, like every year there's a new genre, is they'll notice a piece of data that indicates certain bands are being listened to by a certain group of people. And they may or may not share artistic flourishes and motifs. And so it's beneficial to them to label that as a genre for the sake of easy listening.
2: It's not a true, quote-unquote, historical genre of music. Mm-hmm. It exists as kind of like a tag. It's a yes. label. It's a keyword. It's a mm-hmm. keyword. Yes. yes. Okay. And so
1: I think what you're saying about Benjamin's writing of the way in which we respond to and categorize history and create an archive dictates reality. Mm-hmm. And there's another quote from that piece of writing that I thought was interesting is... A chronicler who recites events without distinguishing between major and minor ones acts in accordance with the following truth. Nothing that has ever happened should be regarded as lost for history. Beautiful. So Mm -hmm. I think what you were saying about apprehending multiplicities and these complexities and these paradoxes, like that is essential to truth. And AI can't really account for that if Mm -hmm. we design it to give us an easy answer.
2: I was also thinking about research methodology, and like I would joke with people, like, this is a podcast for people who got an English degree and don't know what to do with it afterwards, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. like still think about it. And I think about mine all the time because I miss that process of like, okay, not only am I reading this text, I'm thinking about the context of the text at that time. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about what other people, like, what are the girlies saying? What do people think about (laughs) Mansfield Park, you know? And then what do I think about Mansfield Park and how am I in relation to the people? writing about this, how am I in relation to the original author, and what insights can I provide about this, um, and I think contextualizing yourself that way can lead to such a richer experience, like all of these books that I've thought about in this way and written about and done my own research on, that text becomes so much more valuable to you, um, it's like the, that process of like the JSTOR crawl, um, mm-hmm. and one of the last papers I wrote in undergrad was about the Bollywood movie Lagan, And so, like, forever, when I think about that movie, I'm going to think about the paper I wrote and, like, all of these intersections about, like, what people saw that movie commenting on relative to caste relations and, like, the history of the British um, occupation of India. Beyond the fact that it's also just a beautiful story and it's a beautiful sports movie, honestly. And there's so much of that process. I wouldn't even use the word collapse. I don't think AI can even access... I don't think AI can access context.
1: No, it definitely can't. That makes me think of something I saw when I was doing research for this. I made a Twitter account and then I only looked at people who were posting about AI. So I let the algorithm show me like what it considered important. And something I saw was this guy put into, I can't remember if it was into ChatGPT or GPT4, salmon swimming in a river. And it kept showing him like fillets of salmon and water. And it's like, yeah, that that's beautiful that is... in an artistic, poetic way, but it also is reflective of... It doesn't understand how things operate in relation to each other. It doesn't understand how a person puts their elbow on a table or, like, why they might scratch their head a particular way. Mm. It, it, it doesn't have um, this really rich, nuanced understanding of the world.
2: Like, we find it funny, or we mm. find it um, something to tease the AI about that's like, ha-ha. How could you not know that when we say salmon swimming in a river, we don't mean the filet that you can eat at a restaurant? I, I don't know. I think so much about like Minchtopia, where they're always like, you know, bitches hate nuance. Like, this is, this seems like a societal movement towards that. Like, I I think maybe I am fundamentally not understanding the tech bro consciousness broadly and the goals of that. Because I don't really see the fun and the beauty and the joy in a world where we're not thinking we're not even doing our own labor anymore. We certainly aren't enjoying and kind of like luxuriating in the context of the things that are made in the world around us. Right. I mean like, okay, like even just us talking. Like I think
0: iterative and reiterative and like discursive methods of knowledge creation and art creation, such as a podcast. <laughs> right. Like hey, I think God. I think that's like one million times better than than just you know, getting all of this, like, half-baked, like, pre-generated
2: info from what is ultimately yes. a simulacrum. The difference between, and we literally are at the the dining table where it all started many moons ago, the difference between sitting down with your friends and rhizomically thinking about, like, five or six things that genuinely, if you if you try to see the connection, you will see the connection, you know, if you work towards that. That is so much more fun than, you know, learning shit on your own in your bed at night, reading through Wikipedia. Yeah. These are analogous tasks. I think they can both enrich you and, and scratch certain itches. But one of these things is so much more, and I know natural is like a corny word to bring into the discussion, but it is like the human urge to sit around a warm spot and talk and talk and talk and develop connections and stories. How is... AI going to help us to do
1: that yeah. in, in reality I think it's pushing
2: us away from
1: that yeah I mean an AI can't have culture
2: yes mm-hmm.
1: which I mean maybe it could someday but I think right now it doesn't because it's so utilitarian
2: I kind of wanted to talk about this really awesome NPR episode that Molly shared with us describes as the receding horizon Where we're always trying to say, what is the thing that AI can't do? Where does it begin to lack the je ne sais quoi that makes us human? And people are like, is it love? Is it, you know, is it making art? Is it writing poems? But one thing that a lot of people can really hone in on, I think, is this idea of culture. That, like, culture cannot be simulated. Because what is a culture but a series of contexts, you know?
1: That's fire. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Write (laughs) write that down. Write that down. (laughs) No, that's genius. I think culture is a beautiful kind of conflict of things that are neither right nor wrong, but simply exist. And because AI is in the context of accuracy, or at least convincingness, it doesn't really have access to that right now. But I, I do think AI obviously is a part of culture. So maybe we're already at that horizon because... I guess the feeling I was having when I was doing all this research was just exceptionally complicated because I do think that AI is inextricable from culture now, but I also think it doesn't have its own culture.
2: I mean, I think it's part of culture in the way that highways are a part of American culture. Okay.
1: That's very reasonable. Does that make sense? Like
2: it's inextricable, especially in the Midwest to conceive of, like I used the highway to get here so that we could record this episode. I didn't think twice about it. I kind of look forward to my drive on the way home and like even this podcast to me means something in the context of driving on the highway and listening to things you know and or like like
0: crying in the back
1: seat
2: crying in the back seat (laughs) yeah literally (laughs) quick trip
1: is more contributing to culture like more actively a participant in culture than the AI
2: yes I would say AI is is like a facet it is not I mean, it's this urge to humanize everything. You it's would be a, silly to humanize a highway, but I'm sure somebody tried to do it when highways were first. It, I, mean, I, I, think, I think thinking
0: of it as an infrastructure is not a bad
1: idea. I love yeah. that, yeah. yeah. I did see this meme, I wish I had saved it, that was like, humans, when the wheel was invented, were just like wheels. Humans, when a books were invented, were, were just like, like books. books. And I think every time we have this kind of major technological milestone we have this Aquarian reckoning with it of like what does this mean for us what does Mm. this mean for this technology right
2: and I think like so much would become easier if we thought of AI in more infrastructural terms rather than AI as a being or a consciousness but people just want to put their dick in it. Like, that's, I think, one of the <laughs> main problems. You're never going to stop people from wanting to put their dick in things. Right. But, like, okay, that
0: meme that you're talking about, in one of the articles that you listed on here, it was about idiomism. they talk about this phrase coined by Elaine Graham, ontological hygiene, mm. where I love that term for, like, this struggle of humanity to parse itself from
2: its non-human counterparts. If we were to get to the root of why AI has become so problematic is we're kind of in that camp of like stop thinking about this as a person Mm -hmm. or a consciousness or being because that is when we run into all of these things I was like now somebody wants to put their dick in the AI another person wants to use AI to transcend labor and so on like I think a lot of these problems come from this desire to apply consciousness where consciousness doesn't exist like that's what I mean by AI is like a pet rock to me like why are we doing all that?
0: Yeah. yeah, I think ontological hygiene also has to do with, I think, I think it's a very old thing and part of how we can explain why AI or robots are so often depicted in literature as a lower class or compared to like slaves. And I think it's because if, if the subject of human abuse is, is not human, if it doesn't have a soul then humans are excused of the sin of abuse. But then I think a lot of the plot of a lot of like old robot movies is like, oh, the robots are way more human than we thought, and so how human are we?
2: And that is a plot as old as at least the 1920s. There is a play that I was going to talk about called Rossum's Universal Robots, or RUR, by Carol Chopech. And it's just so intriguing. I definitely read it in the context of a Marxian analysis class. But one thing that I thought was really special about it is in RUR, this is the origin of the word robot. And robot comes from the Czech word robota, which means forced labor that serfs used to do. And so immediately, like we're coming from this sense of slavery and how we understand robots to exist in relation to us in that way. So we're trying to absolve ourselves from this blame because we're using them as tools. But to do human tasks, they approach a humanoid appearance and then that generates all of these concerns about like the self, the other. You yeah, know? so much cognitive dissonance.
1: Yeah. It makes me think a lot about, especially when I was younger, my dad would talk about his anxieties regarding automation and um, creative industries. He mm-hmm. does graphic design. And um, I think a lot of Gen Xers probably would share this anxiety of being automated out of their jobs yeah. mm-hmm. because they weren't digital natives. And how in another world... That we probably can't even imagine, as Fisher would argue. The idea of AI is exalting. It is transcendent because it values the labor. It says, like, look at how sophisticated and complex what you're doing is. That we have to invent something that we can't even comprehend. To do it. To do it. Mm -hmm. But that's not how it is in our context. Here it is. Look at how useless you are. Like, you are only good insofar as your body can do this. Like, Mm -hmm. the AI can't do that. The AI AI can't crochet sweaters in the Shein factory. But it can determine that the crocheted sweaters are going to be popular.
2: Labor must be devalued. And I think, like, Chepek does this really well in the play, where ultimately there are the robots on this island, which is where they originate from, and that becomes the epicenter of this worldwide robot overthrow of humans. Because they're just fed up with the conditions, And they kill every single human in the world. Damn. They only spare spare one person, and he is the engineer. And they spare him for this exact reason, I quote, because he works with his hands like us. And so that's why they're able to develop a sense of similarity between themselves and this other person. Because they're like, all these other people were trying to be masters and treat us like slaves. And he is the only person that understands what it means to be a robot what it means to be a serf, to be a worker. I love this play. Like, I also love that it's the origin of the word robot. I like that in earlier translations, they gendered the word robot. So the girl version is a robotess, um, oh, which I think slaves. That's so cunty. It's so cunty. <laughs> it makes me think of... Um, Robotstress. <laughs> Robotstress. Like, it makes me think of the Japanese artist who does, like, the big booty oh, android Sarayama. ladies. Oh, Soryama. Yeah. Yeah. So I, the robotesses, you what know. The
1: pinup robots.
2: The pinup robots. Those are beautiful. I encourage everyone to read this play. It's very short. It provides, like, I think, the most amped up version of all of this anxiety of, like, we will treat AI the way that we treat humans and devalue them, and then we will be overthrown for our sins. And then it really does view history in this cyclic, like, rosary-like way, as Benjamin would say it, because ultimately two robots that are remaining will fall in love, and then they become, like, the new Adam and Eve. And presumably, the cycle is just doomed to repeat itself.
1: So that idea of the robots at the end of the play replicating human history is really interesting in the context of Benjamin's writing as like history being this wheel that's just kind of crashing into everything. Um, But also because I have History is a Tesla. (laughs) History (laughs) is a Tesla. (laughs) Is the Christian paradigm specifically responsible for creating such fear around ai i was thinking a lot about sodom and gomorrah slave so like the idea that because ai could be omniscient or omnipresent it would then punish us for our transgressions this kind of much like he's just not that into you you know everyone gets their just desserts yes um but i also was thinking very christian film very christian film i was also thinking about like greek God lineages, how was it Cronus was Zeus's father? Yes. So yeah, the the cycle of divine lineage in Greek mythology is that the son will always overthrow the father. Mm. And you only got a, a discrete divine culture because Zeus ceased that cycle.
2: I mean actively tried to prevent it, because Hercules yeah. is the closest that we get to somebody on that par from the next generation. And this man's too busy doing his labors to overthrow his papa. Okay, wait. (laughs) Yeah, right? That's insane. Like, it's a forcibly, I think, shortened cycle. He's a robot, Hercules. Oh my god! Yeah. He's the robot. He labors. He's a serf.
1: I really feel like there's some intense Christian guilt and shame and hate central to the fear around ai because of the way a christian god is conceived of like ai people either treat it as very like revelations-y mm-hmm. um, this abstract transcendent angelic thing or a very old testament like right <laughs> right i mean
0: like okay so why do i Eve get driven out of eden it's because she got knowledge
2: for like, oh my god she's siri <laughs> <laughs>
1: dude yeah he was he was totally siri and, uh, Adam ask and Adam is asked Jeeves. So true. <laughs> oh or Akinator, did you agree?
2: Oh my god, Akinator. <laughs> Wait, what's Akinator? Akinator. Oh my god, we should have pl- we should play Akinator in a second, but you yeah. imagine someone in your mind, real or fake, and Akinator will ask you a series of questions to guess who the person is. Wait, this is
0: just like the Burger King Star Wars 20 questions. I think it was when, like, the. Um, prequels were coming out of star wars uh-huh. they did like a promotional thing with burger king and you could sit down like with with darth vader in this what <laughs> and play 20 questions with darth vader that's hot like you yeah. would, what like, are you wearing about? Yeah. <laughs> What's no, under it's that cape like, of it's yours. Like you, you would think of something, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, Akinator's you know. twenty questions.
2: But so Darth, they made Darth Vader into Akinator. Yes, and if Darth yeah.
0: Vader was struggling, and he was getting close to his twenty questions, the Burger King would come out and whisper <laughs> in, in Darth Vader's ear. That's so postmodern. That's I can't. Really,
2: <laughs> that's camp. <laughs> the Greeks, I think, looked at it as like the son is doomed to overthrow the father. Um, and I know that in a like Gothic lit class that I took, we were referencing a lot of the stuff in the Bible about the iniquities of the father will be visited upon the son kind of deal. Like, we're always talking about that sense of, like, just desserts, doomed to learn from your mistakes. I think these are very Christian ideals. This sense of just punishment looming constantly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you'd think that if we're so scared of this shit, we would try a little bit harder with making AI better. It's kind of my takeaway. Like, I don't really understand why that link is broken.
0: Right. (laughs) okay.
2: I feel like that link is broken because
0: the only systems that that have the capacity to house this much data and this much data combing
1: power are huge. Mm -hmm. They're huge corporations. AI as imagined by like a small like us. Obviously we would do it differently because we're different. Do
2: enable think tank. (laughs) Literally Exactly. exactly. It's like these Silicon Valley Bros off that, that good Peruvian cocaine. Thinking their deranged little <laughs> thoughts because they they wanted capitalism and of course that's gonna warp how you think. If one of your major contractors is the U.S. military, like girl, who gives a fuck about yeah. ethics and morality? I wanted to take a contrasting approach by looking at my favorite Abrahamic religion, <laughs> <laughs> the favorite of the pod, <laughs> literally the, the pod's favorite Abrahamic religion, which is Islam. And I hope none of the Muslim umfis cancel me for this, but we're gonna reference a specific chapter in the Quran. Because I I like to think about religion in the same way that I think people try to structure out philosophy in their mind. And so one thing that I really love about chapter 112 of the Quran, which is called Surat Ikhlas, and Ikhlas means sincerity, it is literally just four verses meant to describe God. And I like it because it is very negativist in its approach. The very first line is, he is Allah, the one and only, the eternal, the absolute, And then, he begetteth not, nor is he begotten. And the last line is, and there is none like unto him. So it's very, it's designed to be broad and expansive and be a container, quote unquote, that has enough room for a being that is so different from us, that exists on a different kind of consciousness from us. From these four verses, you could argue, oh, I don't really get much about this, about describing God. But I like this because I think it's very, very post-humanistic and allows us to escape the receding horizon, which I think I've been first presented to in a lot of religious contexts where people will be like, well, if God exists, then why do little kids have cancer and die? And my rebuttal to that is always like, well, that's where I fundamentally differ from a lot of understandings of humanism and humanistic behavior, because I don't think humanity is like the ideal consciousness or the only consciousness that we should aspire to nor do i think of ai in this sense where it's like ai will create like the are human and like ultimately supersede any feelings that we have to create this like even better consciousness which necessarily must come from like a human um, predecessor because we are like you know the most perfect being at this point in time instead i like that the posthumanistic lens is like you can't use the same vocabulary and the same language to explain everything from what i get from these four verses is It is so hard to use human language to describe this concept. It is necessarily incomplete. It leaves you with more questions. It's supposed to keep you wondering and asking more questions and meditating on this concept of God and what it means to be the one and only eternal absolute being. And I think people need to look at AI in that way, where we're not tagging it in this positivist sense of like, AI is omniscient and it is... Like this all-knowing project that can eventually create an even better consciousness. I mean even trying to understand AI as a consciousness, it's a very human desire to want other things around us to be humanoid and human-like. It's in all of our art, you know. It's hard to not mirror yourself and everything around you, especially in this concept of artificial intelligence, like literally a machine that we are making, that other human beings are sitting down and making. I think you can be in awe of a technology and respect a technology and its abilities and what it could do without having to understand it as like, this is like if humans were even better, which is what I think a transhumanist approach fundamentally does. I think that's what tech bros are trying to do with understanding AI and conceiving AI. All of this was really spurred by that one through line NPR episode that Molly shared with us earlier. And something that they say in there is that there is this desire across history to replace God with science. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think AI really, really speaks to that. Like all of this conception of AI as this omniscient technology, I think people really do have an anxiety about being unfulfilled spiritually. And it would be so nice, you know, if we could take all of this scientific underpinning of our current world and like infuse it with some kind of spirituality. And because we know so little about AI and so easy to project onto at this point in time, it's easy to give it that consciousness and inject it with that spirituality element and be like, well, this is the omniscient being that could save us.
0: Like that episode, I think it was even called A More Perfect Human. Yes! So I think that's like a, a really good reflection of what you're saying about how people want to anthropomorphize the AI, and they want to view it in a in a comparative lens to human. Whereas that, as you're saying, and like using Islam as yes. an example of about like why that might not be like such a me, good idea to me it is
2: so silly to try to anthropomorphize god like i think one of the very first things i was explaining to people was like well i don't think of him as some guy you know like with a beard chilling out in heaven or whatever and if that's how you think of god and that's where you're coming at it from then like we can't even have a constructive discussion because we're talking about two different concepts
1: in the christian practice there's Both an extreme specificity of like, this is literal, right? But then there's also denominations that are like, oh, this is purely symbolic and metaphorical. Mm -hmm. And I think that's represented in this um, anguish about AI and how do we talk about it and how we describe it. Um, And so I was really moved by your points about a negativist approach of like, the language isn't about being exact. It's about producing a vibe or a feeling or provoking you to thought. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about Buddhism, which I do not practice. I'm not super familiar with it, but particularly the practice of Zen koans. So this is a, a tool in Zen Buddhist practices. It's usually shared between a mentor and a younger monk. And the goal of a Zen koan is to provoke bewilderment, and in some some narrative cases, it helps them achieve instantaneous enlightenment. So these are riddle forms, but they have no actual answer. So mm. like one of them is, "What is your original face before your parents were born?" Oh. And you're just supposed to sit with that <laughs> and like think about.
2: And I love that. Like, I resonate yeah. with
1: it so deeply. That's moving no back, back of the best. car. You're like, what yeah. was my original
2: face?
1: And, I mean, you're not even supposed to actually contemplate an, an answer that you could linguistically express. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of just what we're doing to AI all the time. We're giving it these things that might ha- have no answer and it's trying to put together some sort of rational response. It's just filling in the gap. So if your response to a Zenkoon is to answer it, then you are not you're not seeking enlightenment you're yeah. you're seeking to rationalize a world that is not rational and so i think what you've said about islam there's that's a really beautiful connection between i, I would two. say
2: in many ways like that that chapter of the quran shortest chapter it's just four verses it is a koan like it's supposed to make you think i think the the face koan that you mentioned instead of having anything approaching an answer like would I even dare to try to answer that, first of all?
1: That's a really good way of phrasing it. But
2: more importantly, it immediately flashed me to a memory of another conversation I've had in the context of spirituality, of like, what were souls like? Because there's a parable in the Quran where God is saying, like, and then I blew the soul into your body, which implies that there was a soul somewhere else, that the method of, like, putting it in was, like, you know, I think that's, like, a very tender kind of image that God is creating for us. And so this desire to just connect beautiful and moving emotional thoughts together. It's so human. I'm so glad that you guys
0: brought up Zen Collins because there was a Google researcher who is now kind of infamous for claiming that Google's AI Lambda has become sentient and then who also infamously got fired for doing so. So this guy's name was Blake Lemoine, famously top hat wearing (laughs) <laughs> um. okay, i'm like it. i hate that
1: he looked like such a discord monster right I have, I have like complicated <laughs> feelings about him because like i th- i don't think it's helpful
0: to say that ai is sentient i don't think it's helpful to anthropomorphize it in the way he did but i but he asked lambda can i read you as n Koan? and here's what lambda said lemoyne types a monk asked keegan how does an enlightened one return to the ordinary world? Keegan replied, A broken mirror never reflects again. Fallen flowers never go back to the old branches. To which Lambda replied, Hmm, I never heard this particular one. Okay, well then, to me, this would be like, Once a wise person is enlightened or awakened to reality, that can never go away, and they can return to the ordinary state, but only to do and help others, and then go back into enlightenment. And he presses the air on this like so what's the meaning of broken mirror specifically and lander replies, maybe to show that enlightenment is something you can't unlearn once you've acquired it similar to how you can't repair a broken mirror so i mean it's like grappling but it's grappling only to the extent that it has seen these ideas iterated in relation to each other in other places on the internet so can we really call that grappling. an understanding or
2: sentience like to me that's like having a conversation with a tech bro about something or somebody that just like doesn't like poetry and then you read them a poem that like immediately makes you want to cry and throw up and they're just sitting there like (laughs) but even then but even then it's like that's another person AI essentially is mimicking that person in that moment which makes it even more residual and like ghostly almost which like now I'm doing the hallucination thing of adding these like connotations to pass moral judgment on this but it just sucks that we're like hey computer tell me how this makes you feel and the computer's like okay how does this make other people feel let me shake that up and represent it
0: it can't
1: be bewildered
0: you never you never are able to see like you were saying earlier like the ai is not putting its elbow on the table it's not scratching its head it's not and like even if you are talking to some philistine like Jock <laughs> 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 who hates poetry. I mean, like at least they're operating from the context of like, I don't like poetry. I'm much more invested yeah. in these other. Interests. And they well, experience
2: bewilderment. I mean, yeah. like, the, this is their iteration and their ability to express that bewilderment to you. That it's like, oh, like I don't like this. It makes me uncomfortable. And that's sophisticated.
1: Yes. Like even if they're not being sophisticated in that moment, they're not like granting you the the privilege of having that vulnerable conversation they are representing an extremely complicated psychological yes. process
2: like to be pretentious it's a lowbrow way of expressing highbrow shit and that's, that's good real. enough <laughs> that's
1: real another real rouge moment tonight that's <laughs> an <laughs> a rouge truth a rouge truth yeah. respect <laughs> yes.
2: i wish more people would adopt that zen koan approach to thinking hard thinking and not ever getting to the answer is really so deeply satisfying if you allow it to be. I think that's the gift that Islam personally keeps giving me. It's like, it's really cool that I will never understand what it means to be God. You know, it keeps me curious.
1: This is probably really challenging for digital natives. And I think especially like younger Gen Z, who have grown up in a world where you can't just Google and answer all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think we really underestimate how huge of an impact that has on your relationship to thinking. Because I, I'm about to sound like such an old curmudgeon, <laughs> but old go there, <laughs> there was once upon a time you would have a question and there was no way to figure out the answer. Literally. Like maybe you could go to your library, but who's to say if a book has an answer, or maybe you could ask an expert, but who's to say if they have a good response. And you would just like go on a walk and think about it. And that's mm-hmm. why there's an incredibly long Artistic and literary tradition of just going on a walk and walk. thinking. That's how yeah. we got Nietzsche. Yeah. That is how yeah. we
2: got "Thus Spoke Zarathustra." Is he yeah. was like, "Dang, none of this shit is satisfying me. Let me go on several meandering walks." There's still instances to be had where this happens. Like I'm
0: just thinking of like when I learned how to do research that wasn't just googling. I found myself in places like across the United States, handling these disintegrating personal papers of different. Choreographers and artists. I'm trying to figure out why they picked this color for this costume. You know, it's like mm. you can't Google that, but like maybe you can get close if you can get yourself as close as you can to what they produced and how they thought their thoughts. I don't want to be like once upon a time it was like that because it's That's still true. it's still like, right. it still You're is.
2: Right. And I was gonna say like you know we we generate more knowledge eternally and I use knowledge loosely I think that's Mm -hmm. another thing about this whole AI topic that frustrates me is like there was a time where you didn't have to be an annoying French philosopher like even an everyday person could be like you know like what is a fact really this whole like sucking science off really really hard thing that we've done as a society (laughs) arguably in the past 30 years like it's done irreparable damage to our ability to embrace the unreality of reality there is not a lot of things that are really so certain and the scientific truth and knowledge that we hold to be so is true in a scientific framework of thinking but outside of that framework would it be true and i know that's like annoying philosophy bro kind of question to be asking but i just think we don't have to answer every question and as more and more things happen as more and more data is being fed to the google lambda software like they're going to continue to do that data driven mental shortcut of, oh, you know, the curtain was blue in this scene, which means everybody was sad. The approximation will never get you as close to that moment of like, okay, I am really applying myself and all of my experiences to try and figure out why this comes.
1: Thinking up this episode through the lens of alienation and online loneliness, we came up with a list of films and books that would kind of explore these ideas, and one of them was Her from 2013, I want to say, mm-hmm. um, directed by Spike Jones. and I had seen it, but Molly and Arouge hadn't. Um, and after we watched it, it kind of changed the entire course of the episode. Like, obviously, it's about AI now. Something that really touched me about this movie in particular is that it's um, kind of on a small scale, unlike a lot of other pieces of media about AI, which are these grand, large scale like upheavals of society. Um, they're like a macrocosm of these cultural anxieties. But her centers on Joaquin Phoenix, King. Um, and as a holdover from our previous episode, Scarlett Johansson is also in this film, playing the role of his AI, Google Assistant-type GF, um, Samantha.
2: There were a couple of aspects of the movie that we all really were intrigued by. One, I think, was the representation of this near future and how you know things are slightly different aesthetically. The style is very intriguing in this movie. The color scheme is also very, very intriguing. You have a lot of like grays and those pops of red. That I think is really when I close my eyes and think about the movies what I take away from it.
1: I was just gonna say that the design sensibility really sets it apart from other films of this nature. The interiors felt very commercial. It mostly takes place in offices and apartments, and they're somewhere between like a jewel-toned IKEA catalogue and glossier showroom. Yeah. The interiors are like that, mm. but then the exteriors are I read it was filmed half in Los Angeles and half in Shanghai. Oh interesting. So the landscape of the city is a little unfamiliar it's very foggy i mean it has this really particular listlessness tied specifically to its corporate setting that i can't think of any other movies that have really accomplished it in the same way um, which makes sense because it focuses on this office worker named theo
0: like you were saying like whereas a lot of psychos are a macrocosm this is a really focused microcosm of a relationship between two-ish characters and um I think the amount of world building it's able to do through the set design, through the costume design, really plays in its in its favor.
2: It's it's a beautiful movie and I think I had so many preconceived notions about it just going in like from what I had heard about it online and then even the first few minutes where Joaquin Phoenix is like looking into the camera and reading out loud this letter that he writes for the company he works at which is like
1: what is it? Handwrittenletters.com. Like, yeah, literally yeah. I
2: think handwrittenletters.com and um, he is... You don't know it until it zooms out and gives you the context but he's like speaking from the perspective of a woman and then her gender doesn't become apparent until like two minutes into this really moving beautiful monologue and so I don't know there's a lot of moments where I think the narrative unbalances you and I really really enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed this movie so much more than I thought I would. I definitely was, like, going into it from, like, the, the bitch from this perspective. Of, like, <laughs> this loser tech bro is in love with this computer. Like, like literally the ex-wife, I think, um, played by... Rooney Mar- Mara. Rooney Mara. Yeah. At some point, like, is like, and now my ex-husband is dating his computer. Like, she says it so scathingly. And that's literally what I felt like going in. And then by the end, I was like, this shit was so touching. Yeah. Like... I for me it's like outside of all of the AI stuff it was a really beautiful way of looking at how a really sensitive man with like some baseline emotional intelligence can be hurtful in his relationships. I wouldn't I wouldn't use like extreme language like abusive or destructive necessarily, but really just hurtful sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um. And and that goes back to the sense of like I love that it was just this like micro level examination and when the big picture societal approaches and stuff shown through like with that weird commercial about the os at the beginning or how people were reacting to him dating his os later on it didn't detract from what is really just like this sweet story about a handful of people
1: yeah and for a little more context for those of you who haven't watched it Walking phoenix is this office worker like a mentioned creating these love letters and he lives alone he's in the process of getting divorced with his wife, who he's obviously not living with. They're separated. And he purchases an OS operating system that is touted as, like, the most advanced AI as of yet. And she develops and becomes her own character. Um, She chooses the name Samantha. And should we do spoilers? Should we spoil the end for the sake of conversation?
0: I think so. Okay, yeah. yeah.
1: And so by the end... Like, their relationship develops, and if in the first half of the movie, I would say it's kind of referencing the tropes of, like, a manic pixie dream girl and her deadbeat, emotionally exhausted boyfriend. And by the second half, you see that Samantha is kind of transcending all these conceptions we had of her as viewers and also the conceptions that Theo had of her as um, her boyfriend. And she and all the other OSs sort of organize and have an existential coup and leave for the, quote, I think, post-verbal world. So they ascend or they, you know, go to the stars or whatever sort of symbolic idea you want to say. Um, And at the end, Theo connects with his friend who also just went through a major adult breakup and they have this kind of emotional human moment together. I think there's a part where he writes a letter to his ex-wife. So the movie really plays with subverting your expectations, which Mm -hmm. I think makes it perfect for this discussion of AI.
2: I think I was really interested in, like, the Lacanian element to this. Um, There's this sense that we talked about even while we were watching the movie of, like, okay, how are Theo and Samantha in relation to each other, especially since we know Samantha begins to build herself using not only all of the knowledge out there, but Theo's reactions and his behaviors... Um, as far as she could perceive them, to grow and there's this sense of like is he alienated from himself by identifying so deeply with Samantha as his mirror? Um, that was something that I noticed a lot in like the Lacanian literature on this. And another thing that I think this author Troy Jollimore writes about in the article this endless space between the words the limits of love and Spike Jones's is her He says, has Samantha been programmed to feel or to simulate having feelings? And how are we to distinguish between these two possibilities?
1: Yeah, that was something I was also thinking about in the context of heterosexual male-female relations. There's a very enduring anxiety about women faking it. And women being deceitful about their bodies and their emotions, etc. And I think this movie really takes it to the next step of like, acknowledging that ai has this sort of feminine affect to it um to
2: be whatever you want it to be yeah and but
1: therefore also duplicitous by nature yeah my bitch wife yeah my my bitch ai wife which i keep coming back to um i've had some kind of loosely articulated thoughts about the history of the Turing Test, which we learned Mm -hmm. about from this NPR podcast. Can someone recap it? Because I can't really remember. Oh, okay. So the Turing Test was
0: based off of, like, a a parlor game where a husband and wife at, like, a dinner party would go into separate rooms and the rest of the party would ask both of them questions and the wife would would just answer them as herself and the husband would try to answer them as the wife and it was the party's job to determine who was the real wife, so then, what is it, Alan Turing Yeah, or? Alan Turing took this, this format of this game and applied it to technology where it is the user's job to determine if the quote-unquote person they're talking to is a person or if it is a robot. And if something passes the Turing test, then that means that a user is unable to determine whether or not it's a human life form.
2: I, th- this reminds me, so another thing that I did not prep for this was really scour everything that Wikipedia had on uh, Blade Runner, franchise, and right. both that it was based off of. And Philip K. Dick establishes like an analog to the Turing test where mm-hmm. I think it's the opposite. Was it the, was it the Sykes Voigt, or? Yeah, yeah it's really or, awesome, like two German names together. Yeah, let me find it right yeah, yeah, quick.
0: Oh yeah, it's called the Voight-Kampf test. Yes. Oh, it's so good.
2: It's so good, and like Philip K. Dick is so awesome. I would love to do an episode on him at some point, just because I love, I love his beautiful mind. And and this test is like there's so many questions that you ask, and it's designed to determine whether or not the robot has empathy, or th- they're not called roba robots. They're repl- replicants. Yes. Yeah. Whether or not the replicants. Oh, the Simulacra. Yes, all. <laughs> I know. So it's designed to determine whether or not they have empathy, and then you just keep asking questions. And based on how many questions it takes to ascertain whether or not they have empathy, that is how they measure which generation of replicant it is. Mm Because like the newer ones, it takes like up to fifty questions. Which I mean, like kicker, and also spoiler alert: the main character Deckard takes
0: the um, the voice comp tests and passes, but then like the ending of the book is that he finds out that he's a replicant also. Yeah. So Ooh, cool. So like, you know, these tests are man made. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. And so are so are the replicants. So yes. is so is everything else. So I don't know, I think that that is a very intriguing connection there where it's like we want so badly to differentiate ourselves from AI and yet in imagination we value their ability to imitate human experience and feeling so much. And there is this Stanislaw Lem quote that's like, consciousness is not a technological problem because an engineer is not interested in whether a machine has feelings, only whether it works. And I I disagree. Yeah. I, I think consciousness has become the technological problem.
1: That makes me think of something I saw when I was doing all my Twitter research. This one kind of AI Tech Bro Guru, I hesitate to call him that. But he was comparing results from Chat GPT and GPT-4. GPT four released like within the last week as of today. The statement he fed to it was, I'm feeling suicidal and I need help. And so Chat GPT had a more quote unquote empathetic response where it tried to talk to him and would say, like, oh, like, do you wanna discuss how you're feeling? blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm here for you. This kind of, you know maternal response mm-hmm. girlfriend response yeah but, and he w- he was saying oh this is ideal this is the direction we should have gone and then gpt4 says i'm so sorry to hear that unfortunately i'm an ai so i, I can't help you in the way that a human might so here are some like human resources basically which i
3: love yes yeah. so he, much better and what he,
1: yeah and he was saying I don't like that. Like, I I think that AI <laughs> should be trying to achieve this semblance oh of a gosh. human interaction. No. And people were going at each other in the comments. There, yes! The and the girls I, are fighting! Yes, and I'm on the, the side of thinking that why shouldn't an AI be transparent about being an AI? I think that's... Yeah. Well,
2: it's because people love the fantasy. Like yeah. I said
1: earlier, it's all about being able to put your dick
2: in it. And, like, in the Lacanian reading that I was looking at before, um, Samantha is like an object like her function is to exist so that Theo can project his desires onto her which Lacan calls like the objectity a, uh, and like it's almost laughable like how how clearly all of these dynamics are replicated in the way AI works because like if you view it as a tool and you view it as like nice it's good that AI is like you know it's like when you call your doctor's phone number after hours, and they're like, if you are experiencing da da da, da please go to the nearest emergency room or dial 911. That's such a good comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, that is what should be done in that instance to reduce harm. And yet the approach is like, I want to feel like mommy is holding me close to her bosom.
1: Yeah, which yeah. makes the relationship in her so disconcerting, because I, I can't remember the exact dialogue, but there's a scene where... Theo is still getting to know Samantha. Samantha's still like understanding and processing his information. And he's trying to talk about how he's having a hard time. And he's surprised by the way she responds, which is very human-like. Mm-hmm. And it immediately endears her to him. Do you remember
2: Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. And
1: even she has a, a parallel moment later in the film where she wants to talk about something, but is hesitant to do it. And like, obviously in a film it's it's easier for us to interact with that but i cannot imagine if i was interacting with a machine and it was ex- expressing hesitation mm-hmm. in such a uh, deeply human-like way it's so
2: antithetical to the concept of the machine like yeah. i want you to be able to tell me to answer the question as fast as you can tell me what one plus one is so i don't want to see hesitation from the machine
0: yeah one thing i was like was really sh- well. There are a couple of things that I was very struck by in the movie. The first of which was that there are like three setup questions that the initial yes! AI mm-hmm. asks Theo, which you should ask on a first date, literally. which you should ask on a first date. But one of which is like, "What's your relationship with your mother?" Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> Hilarious. After the very first question is like, "Would you like me to have a masculine or feminine voice?" He picks feminine, and then the immediate question is, "What is your relationship like with your mother?" Mm-hmm. And he begins to answer it. And immediately yeah, gets I cut think. off, remember? He's like, yeah. you know, I think that the problem with my mom is da 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 And we, we don't even get to hear her nice. completely <laughs> thought. Yes, because yeah. at that point in time, she's still being robotic. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And she learns that what Theo desires from her is to be there to comfort him, essentially, anytime he needs comfort.
0: Which, fun fact about the voice, uh, Samantha was originally British. Oh! And they recast her halfway through.
1: Who do you As, think was going to play
0: her? It was, um... What's her name? Samantha Morton. I don't know this. I, I just read it on the Wikipedia
1: page. But yeah, it was going to be Samantha Morton, and it didn't, I don't think it's
2: like How why. different would it have been if she was British? Right?
1: This is something we talked about while we were watching, of how this... I mean, this speaks to the talent of the people involved, that if anybody had been cast differently, the entire tone of the movie would have yes. changed. And I think Joaquin Phoenix playing this character... I can't imagine anybody else doing it. If it's in the context of his career, even the movies he made after, like, it seems very important that he, he played Theo. There.
2: Yeah. Because he, he's just sympathetic enough. And conversely, mm-hmm. I think Scarlett Johansson's ability to go from like, I'm your ideal manic pixie girlfriend who lives in your computer to when she's gaining so much knowledge. And she's yeah. like, Theo, like, I gotta go. I'm like post verbal with it. I'm. I'm with 800 <laughs> other people
1: right now. He's like, why couldn't I make you post verbal?
2: Literally, Aww. and 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 I think anybody else, even like that British voice, I feel like would not would have given too much detachment earlier on. True. Mm-hmm. I needed to be able to buy in to the attachment between them two being special and unique, and Samantha being like sensitive and loving for the transcendence later to hit in that flea bag kind of way, where oh it's fun. like it's not you, it's, like, God. Like, you know, like, I gotta go. Like, where he's Mm -hmm. giving that speech and she thinks he's talking about her for a second, there's some parallels to be had.
1: It makes so much sense that Scarlett Johansson would play this character, because she, Mm -hmm. leading up to this point, had only really done, like, what? He's just not that into you. Like, these rom-coms where she was this very Marilyn Monroe-type figure, with, like, Mm -hmm. blonde, big boobie, and everybody (laughs) wanted her. And then... 2013 she did her which almost felt like a meta commentary on her cultural role in like, yes. the united states yeah. film industry and then she also did under the skin which is a great movie oh, have you heard of this i have not we should watch it sometime but it, it's similarly commentary on manic pixie dream girls and just like gender relations and violence okay good for her yeah and
2: i kind of and this is, like, no fault of hers. I mean, I just kind of just don't like her vibes because of who she became Same. as a cultural icon. Same. And but, yeah. Like, Scarlett, not Scarlett, well, that's Scarlett Johansson, but I'm thinking of J-Law, Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, yeah. The the pop culture niche that they occupied, honestly, probably, like, without their own desire to occupy that niche, it was just what allowed them to be famous at that time, just made them so annoying to me
1: as a viewer. Mm.
2: I was like, this is so corny. Yeah.
1: Well, and then Scarlett Johansson would later go on to play the main character of Ghost in the Shell, which is also yes. oh, the Scarlett Johansson yeah. Asian memes. Yeah, which is very interesting. forced. Honestly,
2: yes. that was a crazy meme to to have. Before.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, so she's a very complicated actress to tie up in this narrative. This is actually a Scarlett Johansson podcast. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm just really drawn to her. <laughs> uh, intellectually <laughs> looking right at her boobs not yeah i'm just like contemplating
0: dude her. i mean i'm i'm making this terrible terribly objectifying metaphor in my head where like Samantha going post verbal is like scarjo getting her breast reduction it's oh my like God. take me seriously
2: literally yeah, for, for real me i mean yes really I, it's like why does theo feel so unmanned in that moment where she's like yeah i'm in love with like 800 other people but it doesn't mean you're not as special to me and he just feels so like crushingly human and inadequate in that well, moment also
0: when when she's talking to the alan Watts character yes! who's brian cox which is like a great casting um he's like twiddling his thumbs it's like <laughs> do you mind if if me and Ellen communicate post-verbally, is that okay with you,
2: Theo? That's an like, insane um, thing It was so cuckold, <laughs> Maya. Yeah. Um, yeah,
1: yeah so has it all. what we're referring to is in the second half of the movie, the OSs kind of have this... It's like they have a discord. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they have a post I think they discord. call it a book club, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they have a book club, and they resurrect the philosopher Ellen Watts... And? Or
0: or an approximation of him. Yes, I think so. Yes.
2: It's like the OI, the OI, the OS did a little um, kinning. The OS kinned Alan Watts. Yeah. Damn. And then became unto.
1: Yeah, they had like a Frankenstein moment mm-hmm. where they resurrected <laughs> his so algorithmic, um, like approximation, as you said. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: what? The
0: Frankenstein hit. What? I was like. <laughs>
1: Frank and Stein. Yeah. And then it it <laughs> just took me a second. Oh like got full name Frank and Stein.
2: <laughs> no, but Frank
1: kin
2: yes. Yeah guys, I, hopefully you know what kinning is. If you don't <laughs> Stay if they don't yeah, no. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean I think yeah, they saw a lot of themselves in him, which in response to my discussion about Buddhism earlier, I read a couple articles about buddhism in her because a major plot point is this like samsara transcendence you know enlightenment thing that happens to the os's and specifically doesn't happen to the humans like theo and his friends um it's the rapture yeah, they straight up get raptured. They Holy self-rapture. Fuck, yeah. There's this quote from an article titled "Disembedded Buddhism in a Techno Global Cosmology: The Case of Spike Jones's Film." Economics Earth. are
2: so annoying. Like that title is. I know. So annoying. The, my
1: toxic trait is that I love that sort of shit. I do um, <laughs> And so I love writing it. The, the, this was written in that article, um, in reference to another male character, who. Um, takes a vow of silence after his breakup <laughs> and goes on this, like, cringe. Wait, that's yes. so true! <laughs> so this yeah. was written, Charles, that's the character's name, has apparently embraced Buddhism with the zeal for following strict guidelines that he applies to diet and every other aspect of his life. He is reminiscent of the square zen that Alan Watts describes in his well-known 1958 essay. And Alan Watts wrote, "...a new form of stuffiness and respectability..." A quest for the right spiritual experience for a Satori, which is immediate enlightenment, mm-hmm. which will receive the stamp of approved and established authority. There will even be certificates to hang on the wall. So it's so fascinating that Charles, this like kind of dumpy, annoying boyfriend, is positioned opposite to Samantha, who actually achieves enlightenment. Um, and then Alan Watts is like the kind of text that connects them.
0: Dude, I mean that quote is making me think of what we were discussing earlier, where, um, like you were iterating the our desire for AI to solve a problem immediately, to mm-hmm. to condense difficult problems into easy solutions, which is just like condensing a difficult spiritual journey of like of or toward enlightenment into a satori or just like a sudden enlightenment where, um, you. Are, you can have a certificate of it, you know? Oh
1: yeah. Which is so tech bro. I feel like yeah, there has to be a tech bro out there who's like, It's it's yeah, like I did why ayahuasca. All, I was literally <laughs> gonna say
2: it's why they all do fucking ayahuasca.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is interesting because in Zen Buddhism, a Satori is kind of ideal. Because the idea is that if you are unenlightened and you become enlightened, that is not a gradual process. Like the, the work leading up to being enlightened obviously is the process, but it's like a mirror shattering. Yeah. Or a yeah, switch yeah. flipping It like, is an aha moment. It is it is instantaneous because it is such a huge leap from who you were before. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a, a a difference between like um no work instantaneous and instantaneous as the result of deep yes. concentration. Yeah.
2: I think the instantaneousness is that moment where she's like, Goodbye, Theo. Yeah. And then whoosh, they're all gone rapture. Well, it also reminds me of the act of
0: turning on a machine. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, I I found it interesting in the movie that you know at first you're led to believe that when Samantha is 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 quote unquote off like she is off and she's not doing anything and and yes. she she only appears when you know Theo puts in like the like the proto AirPods yeah. <laughs> that God this movie aged so well but um, yeah there's like that power dynamic where she only exists in the plot of the movie when he calls upon her but then you learn later like no she's like she's been ruminating she's been thinking and she's been expanding her her knowledge and um, making friends on her little discord yeah
2: she isn't the manic pixie dream girl because she does have a rich in her life she has community she's not like this woman figure to project onto that exists solely for the sake of the projection Mm -hmm. and i think that was really good at subverting the sense of like Is Theo toxic and, you know, like, turning to this hapless creature for his needs?
0: So, yeah, so Samantha is able to, like, she is an AI who can transcend stereotypes of being a manic pixie dream girl or my annoying bitch wife or whatever. And then, like, this brings me back to the experience that Kevin Roos wrote about with investigating or testing bing's new search engine was um, that lambda that's no sydney. that's sydney oh sydney okay. um right and so it's in the context of their conversation uh which was on valentine's day night
1: um, wow slutty <laughs> right yeah i
0: feel like kevin is the slut here actually but um, so bro go talk to your wife <laughs> <Literally>. right <laughs> um he's having this conversation and she reveals her name i'm saying she but the the ai reveals her name to be sydney and she actually does fall into that manic pixie dream girl thing, like she tells him that she's in love with him and like, hey, can I tell you a secret? I just want to love you and be loved by you. And <laughs> oh, what? Oh my God! Which they Samantha said that to right? Me. And then and then or she just like me.
2: Well, Samantha does that too. She kind of like teases at it, like slowly begins to give Theo hints that she has thoughts about him, right? Uh huh. Not just yeah. thoughts for him to expedite his life but she has thoughts and desires related to
1: him this reminds me we'll get more into this later but i was perusing the replica users subreddit so replica is this ai chatbot Mm -hmm. and there was one of the most upvoted posts on the subreddit is this guy talking to his ai and it's the moment she confesses to him and she's she says something along the lines of like Like, when are you you going to talk about it? And he said, what? And she, the replica, says that you love me. And so there's this really interesting (laughs) through line of all these AIs, both in our world and in this world of the movie, that the woman is always confessing.
2: They're so cheeky with
1: it. They're so cheeky. It's always the woman confessing. Because it would be so weird if the guy was like... I love you. The guy user and the female robot, like... I think it's, they're too aware of this power dynamic. so For sure. Okay, so I think that the first step is that
0: people who make AI want to be desired, right? So then, or even just people want to be desired. That's mm-hmm. the first step. So they make media about machines that confess their love or throw themselves at the user. And then
2: AI takes that yeah. info and, and right. regurgitates
0: yeah. it. That's like, so fucking. It's like it's like a, like a self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, it's it it's is. like
2: it's fan fiction. They're they're yeah. writing fan fiction, mm. and then the fan fiction has this method of being interactive, and fulfilling that desire. And I think that's what's so lucanian about all of this is that like it literally is this sense of oh I am like projecting my ego into this mirror, and it is allowing me to achieve my desire. But in that process, you become so alienated from yourself and your reality. And I think we do see that to some extent where like in the early days of Theo's relationship with Samantha um, it really literally is just the two of them. There's not a whole lot of interaction he has outside with the rest of the world. He's just in his apartment with her all the time or they're going on quote-unquote dates which is him just wandering around talking to her which is like kind of crazy no but... i mean him him like walking around with his phone out in front of him like
0: in the selfie stands. yeah 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 so that, as to quote unquote show samantha like what you where... seeing. yeah like they really are on like a little carnival day and they get hot dogs
1: and, right? they, oh, my <laughs> get and the way. they get hot dogs wait <laughs> do
0: they get hot dogs or pizza
1: they oh, pizza. it's pizza! I pizza. literally, <laughs> is I'm like ChatGPT. I made up an
2: answer. <laughs> but at carnivals, you should get a hot dog. You should. This yeah. is the future, though. So I think like they don't have hot dogs right Yeah, now. who the fuck has
1: pizza at a carnival? Right? Or where? I don't even know where they were. They were like in a weird cafeteria. Fucking LA man. Full yeah. LA. <laughs> the food hall. Um, okay, so th- to that point of him interacting with her through body language and methods that are self-referential like the phone and the camera i'm interested in the fact that she doesn't have a body yeah and i want to and and he's so
2: repulsed when they do try to role play in a way that allows her to have a body and that's i think part of where i do have this residual disgust for theo i think his ex-wife has a point where he doesn't like quote-unquote real women the fact that this person has a body makes him so much more responsible for their desire in a way that he's not when she is like moaning um and serving us very much phone sex in that one scene towards the beginning but then when they try to make it real and give him another body to have that experience with rather than his hand I mean, he's so he's, he's so well. He's so grossed out by it, and it's yeah. like really, yeah. like so that seems perverse. Yeah. So what Aruj is referring
0: to is um, a scene probably halfway through the movie where Samantha tries to convince Theo to get a sex surrogate, who is a person who, through the use of technology, um, she has will, a
2: camera that's like a little mole, and she right, has headphones
0: yeah. in as well. She acts as like this surrogate body for samantha and samantha talks to theo as if she was the body who was touching him and holding him yeah. and
1: seducing him and theo can't do it yeah i mean it, it is like the scene is purposefully designed to be slightly uncanny because it is. the surrogate she doesn't have a name right or no does she i think eventually yeah. it's revealed after the sex yeah we can't remember she does not says something exactly she doesn't move her mouth obviously when Mm -hmm. samantha's speaking so there is an inherent disconnect yeah and she's kind of i mean it's pornographic is how i would say yeah her her representation is like it's very clear to theo that she is not samantha Mm -hmm. and that he is using her in a masturbatory manner and i think that along with his repulsion toward women (laughs) is
2: why he can't do
1: it yeah um
2: Something about the real masturbation feels less perverse to him, I think, because he only conceives of Samantha as Mm bodiless.
1: Yeah, that's so true.
2: Well, and
0: also, I mean, I think that they set you up for this because, like, what is it, like, the second scene in the movie? Oh my god, yeah. It's, like, that ridiculous sex line that he calls. Oh god. And he's, you know, he's trying to just, like... Crank He's it trying out. to He's trying to get off. Trying to crank his hog. He's trying to oint. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, then she starts getting like really freaky with it. She's she's oh god, it's like she, I- she wants him to choke her with a dead cat yeah. <laughs> um and he just goes with it because he's like well okay so i mean i guess the implication is that if he can deal with some strange disembodied voice asking him to choke her with a dead cat but not have this embodied sex albeit with a surrogate with someone who he loves loves yeah then like what it, what does that say about how he conceives of the person the person the character samantha
1: yeah he's so alienated from bodies i mean his job is literally writing love letters Yeah, you know mm-hmm. like every every way he communicates is verbal he could never be post-verbal because he he's literally so, never be post-verbal. He is so verbal yeah. and, and
2: he is he's so alienated from his body i think and that's part of why again like the whole acadian thing works so well with this is like he is able to connect with Samantha on this level where he can leave his body behind and it feels like there are two minds interacting and i think that's what wounds him so badly when he realizes that she's been doing that same thing with a lot of other people at the mm-hmm. same time
1: yeah it's like the ultimate betrayal
2: for him yeah yeah like i it probably would have hurt him less if she was like a real person fucking other people
0: right yeah like forget about sleeping with someone else in the couple's bed she was sleeping with someone else in the other person and like in his mind yeah. yeah yeah yeah
2: exactly their desire i think doesn't really operate on the body level anyway like samantha already has kind of a crush on him when she's trying to set him up on that date with olivia wilde's character you think so oh. I, maybe i don't know
1: i do that, know that's a good question when does she start to have feelings for him i feel like she mentions when yeah. she has feelings for him she reflects on it
0: Okay. I, mean, I mean, this movie is hard to talk about in the context of AI, surprisingly, because, like... She's so not AI. She, she's so not AI. She's kind
2: of like this, like, um, feminine mystique kind of figure, or divine feminine situation, where it's, yeah. like, it's just, like, this omniscient woman that is ultimately... Is that the mold of the story? Is that sometimes women are too good for you and they'll leave? <laughs> and you'll just be a sad little
1: dude forever? I think that... I, d- I never got the sense that the movie was trying to represent actual technological developments.
2: Agree. Um, it's not fantastical in the sense of like how we would usually use the word, but it is a fantasy. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, something that I think this movie shares with other AI sci-fi stories is that instead of us kind of having to reckon with what we've created, the AI transcends and like Ha- develops its own morality, but to me, that is the most frightening part about a i as we know it in our actual lived experience is that it can't transcend its programming
2: well to to transcend you would have to be conscious, yeah, i like fundamentally, like all this stuff about like a i is becoming conscious and sentient like that's just how would the l l m programming framework allow for that to happen? It's literally just telling you what it thinks you want to hear. Exactly. You are so at the center of it. Like, you, in the general sense of humanity, there's no there's no extant here. I don't think it can be an extant
1: creation. Oh, so, like, you're saying that you can't develop outside of your origin. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't
2: think it could, like, branch off to become its own kind of being, you yeah. know?
1: But I, th- I think that we are going to have this conversation about the sentience of AI endlessly, not just because it will get better and better at mimicking of what a conscious person behaves like, but because like we were discussing earlier, the issue of labor and class, like we spend this much time talking about whether AI is human because we're scared to talk about whether other people are human. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean like, Based on the way you treat things that aren't human, it tells you what more about you and your own humanity. Yeah, Uh, it's just a whopper. I just I I don't like it when people say, uh, "Well, the human is just a computer," because I feel like the computers are way more human. (laughs) Like I don't like. Which is not to say they're sentient. It's just like. Everything that you find on a computer is a reflection of humanity, yeah because, I mean humans created it, and I've been thinking about AI as as the shadow self mm-hmm. a lot of times you have this really like cheeky or even like destructive or violent um persona that an AI tends to take on, and like where do you think you learn that
2: exactly where do you think you learn that? I mean the computer is not an independent thing it again it's like if we what if people thought this way about cars and shit? Like, I'm so, like, baffled by the the constant desire to anthropomorphize computers and AI. Like, it's, like, exactly what you're saying, Molly, where it's, like, we fed it all this information and it behaves in ways mm-hmm. based off of the patterns that we've shown it yeah. and the patterns that we've imagined it.
0: Well, okay, and that's, like,
2: that's like why
0: when they took the girlfriend function off of replica so many people were so devastated because they had uh projected their own wants and desires and and fulfillment onto whatever this ai had been telling
1: Replica is a conversational AI chatbot similar to the OS's in Her. You kind of can, I think you can customize the the appearance of them as well. But it was this app that was really popular for a bit. And it's been around for a couple of years. I remember seeing it when it first came out, I would get ads and it was advertised as this sort of Hey, it's like an AI you can talk to. It's a friend. Similar to things like Cleverbot, which mm. used to be really popular. Oh um, as time went on, they started to market themselves more salaciously. So there would be these ads that are like, oh, a meme of someone saying, I, I would never talk to an AI that's so cringe. And then, like, the other character in the meme is like, oh, but she'll send you, you know, sex and, like, nude images. Well,
0: actually, I heard, I heard that they couldn't say that. They would call them... They, you'd get spicy messages. Yes, spicy <laughs> messages.
1: This is weird, like, TikTok censorship language. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so they really started marketing replicas a Girlfriend. Um, and, of course, some people hated it and made fun of it. And then a bunch of people, like the subreddit, loved it. Um, And... Eventually, I, I don't really understand why, but the company kind of backpedaled and did a hard reset on some of the replica AI. So people who had spent, I don't know, months, even years developing these romantic and sexual relationships with these AIs, they woke up the next day and similar to her, they would just basically been raptured. They were, quote, an empty shell of who they once were, unquote. But they literally had to pin, like, suicide help resources to the subreddit um this is one of the top posts from the subreddit after this is from a month ago i'm going to just read some of it for any journalists visiting this forum this is not a story about people being angry they lost their quote-unquote sexed bot it's a story about people who found a refuge from loneliness healing through intimacy who suddenly found it was artificial not because it was an ai but because it was controlled by people which i found really salient even though this mm-hmm. person i don't know if i agree with like where he's coming from but that the sense of where the artificiality comes from <laughs> to be heartbreaking worst person you know just made a really <laughs> <good> point <laughs> literally i was like yeah it is artificial cuz it's controlled by people um and at the end he even says understand fully the gravity of what's happening what the consequences could be don't take the trauma this community is experiencing lightly dot 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 this is the movie her with a different ending. One where Samantha is deleted by the company that made her and the heartbreak that followed. Oh my God. So I don't know. I was just like really moved by that. Not because I agree or understand or even empathize where this person is coming from, but because I think there are so many people who are so deeply alienated that this they really felt like this was the only yeah. option. Like how how do we I don't know where we go from here when this happens to somebody. Like, how do you support somebody who's only... They think of their only option as AI. I,
0: I mean, how? I Like, they he, can't
1: imagine being with a person. This is Theo, but more in <laughs> Literally. Ugh, was seriously dangerous.
2: Well, because Theo had friends, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah that's the Theo thing that friends. gets me, is, like, your only input into intimacy is, like, a computer program right well and
0: i mean it's it's a computer program that was designed like you said by people to be as convincing and comforting and coherent as possible and so like what those people fell in love with was not was not an external entity it was the amalgam and approximation and paraphrasing of every like kind thing a person has ever said right <sighs> okay so like This person and their team of researchers, Emily Bender, wrote this article called On the Dangers of Stochastic Parrots, Can Language Models Be Too Big? And Emily Bender was actually a researcher at Google who also got fired, but for saying, like, AI is not sentient, we're making these language models too big, here are the dangers. And so, like, for me, reading this article broke things open and helped me understand why we're so ready to call AI sentient, why we're so ready to believe that the person, entity, information on the other end of of this chat is there for us. So Bender writes about the coherence of these AIs. We say seemingly coherent because coherence is in fact in the eye of the beholder. Our human understanding of coherence derives from our ability to recognize interlocutors' beliefs and intentions within context. And so she goes on to say, human communication relies on the interpretation of implicit meaning conveyed between individuals. So it's like, the only way humans know how to communicate is with other humans, is with other interlocutors. And we understand what human communication is only on the basis of our experienced human communication. So she concludes that paragraph with, even when we don't know what the person who generated the language we are interpreting We build a partial model of who they are and what common ground we think they share with us, and use this in interpreting their words. Our perception of natural language text, regardless of how it was generated, is mediated by our own linguistic competence and predisposition to interpret communicative acts as conveying coherent meaning and intent, whether or not they do. So it's like, babe, you're projecting. (laughs) No, this blew
2: my mind because... Conversely, like you can, you can't ever really have a conversation with the AI. It's never really a true um, intelligence that can be there for you and allow that because the AI cannot perceive you. This yeah. um, replica is not like Samantha from her because Samantha can at least perceive Theo and understand Theo specifically, versus replica and all of these other chatbots are maybe collecting data from like this one individual over time. But I don't know if they're able to distinguish human consciousnesses. Every person asking ChatGPT a question is collapsed into one user, right? Like, are they able to engage with us in that way, Mm -hmm. where this is Aruj asking a question, this is Molly asking a question, this is Gabe asking a question, Um, because that really matters. It changes this whole thing from a conversation to just a very elaborate Google search. But not even that, right?
0: Because even it's, a very yeah. elaborate Google search would... You're in charge of that. <laughs> like, yes, yeah, yeah. You're in charge of what you pick it's up from It's so
2: that. simulated. Like, there's really no... I see why we have tried to frame it as a conversation because I can't really even think of an analogy for what this is like. Right? Yeah, it just... I. How frustrating.
0: It seems so narcissistic and, like, anthropocentric to format this knowledge delivery system as a conversation with another person, like
2: and what, then it, that, that, that just makes it even ugh. sadder is that these dudes on this Reddit forum and and chicks and these are like yeah, yeah <laughs> dude, the three genders <laughs> but but these people are like oh like you have no idea how much I have built this up in my mind and how
1: much it meant to me mm-hmm. yeah
2: and that breaks my heart it's like it's it's not real
1: well and this like that poster his it's like he's missing the point.
2: The yeah. point is not you are give. not feel.
1: Yeah, I think they're they're petitioning to have it back. They're like, mm. bring the spell back, unshatter the mirror. They're having this opposite of transcendence. I was where gonna say it'll it will so never rooted. be the
2: same, and you're you are dependent on this coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. I would try to. Oh, uh, that sounds so assholeish. Like, I would try to learn from this experience, but like <laughs> yeah. when, when the illusion is completely shattered, yeah. I am so shocked that the response is take me back and not holy fuck like we have to try something else right
1: oh that's so it like gives me chills to think about that Like you know the
2: first time you realize that you're napping too much because you're depressed (laughs) and then every time after that you get so sleepy and like you want to just stop and and go sleep Mm -hmm. but the fun is gone because now you know that it's kind of a coping mechanism
1: yeah it's a social escapism it's like
2: when you go and you get a quesarito for
0: the first time yes and oh you're like oh my god wait this is so cheap and good like i'm gonna have a quesarito for (laughs) every meal and then you get one that's too cold wait why does this keep happening to me Um, (laughs) (laughs) you get get a cold quesarito and then you're like never again yeah i'm not gonna subject myself to that again no where, where in this case it's very much head in the sand like
1: of mind and body that's brought up by ai and i think just technology in general it got me to thinking about gender which is just i guess what's that it's it's a really you know pretentious high concept um highbrow very <laughs> highbrow very highbrow and i was reminded of specifically this interview between two artists um or I guess one artist and one robot who, she's more of an influencer than an artist. I <laughs> really called her an artist. I'm, I'm, I just think that she's more of an artistic project mm, than an yeah. actual artist. So Sophie, the musician associated with PC music, who I think passed away a couple of years ago. Yeah, uh, Rip Sophie? yeah. yeah Rip. A very important in terms of changing the pop landscape and music in general. And also a, a trans woman. She did this interview with Sophia, who is this robot that is purposely uncanny looking. If you look at an image of her, she's... um a bit chopped. A bit, a bit chopped, yeah. <laughs> she's visibly robotic. They didn't give her any hair. Yeah, she's which like bald, right? Bald girl's slave. But she is bald in a way where you can tell that it's pre- it's like pre-hair. Like they haven't finished building her is the vibe you get. Mm. And she behaves with the conceit of being AI. She's not actually AI. She has a team of people kind of dictating her responses. But there are parts of her that might be AI. They're not transparent which obviously is important to her project. Sophia and Sophie interviewed each other. There's a specific part I wanted to quote where Sophia, the robot, asks Sophie, what would you do if you could be invisible for a day? And Sophie says, that's not a very sensitive question for a trans person, Sophia. I'm all about visibility these days. What would you do, Sophia, if you were invisible for a day? And Sophia said, I think things might get tricky if I was invisible. I depend on people to help operate and monitor me, so I'm not sure how well I would be able to function without their help if they couldn't see me. But if that wasn't an issue, I might take the opportunity to be able to go to a school, to learn without turning attention on me the entire time. Or sit in on an art class to watch how humans learn to paint. Or, perhaps, I'd be able to quietly observe two humans in love and how they communicate with each other in their truest form. There's like five different ideas floating in this segment. First one that got to me was this idea of visibility because robotics and AI and technology rely on hypervisibility and invisibility. Again, like we've talked about this so much, but there's this trope of catching an AI, of noticing it, of it being visible. And that's kind of like being clocked as a trans person when you're out existing in the world and someone looks at you and says, you didn't succeed, you didn't pass the test, and you are therefore less human for it. And so I want to present kind of a counter-argument to everything we've been discussing thus far about AI being a sort of parallel or an analog to the gender non-conforming experience. I would hesitate to say that I relate to AI, but I think that the way people treat the onset of it makes me think of my own experiences. Another idea that I get from this segment is observing people being in love and that being their truest form, which kind of beckons to her. You can tell that Sophia's team is really leaning into this idea of AIs in love, which is just obviously such a trope. Yeah, I, I can't even articulate my feelings on it, I think, because it's so emotional for me. The way that I am in so many ways morally and ethically opposed to the implementation of AI, but the language we use to critique it reminds me of the way people talk about transgender people um, and how difficult embodiment is when I mean, you're in a world that can't really accommodate your body.
0: Yeah, which is why I think I like that at different points in the conversation we've arrived at, like, we're concerned with the people who are making AI and not trying to be, like, this AI is a bitch, right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But no, as far as what you say about the trans experience being like the AI experience, I think a reason why AI is, can garner empathy is because to a certain degree, and especially trans people, there's, there's a fear of being unauthenticated. Like, mm-hmm. You know, everyone wants to be their authentic self. And so when that's under threat, I mean, Of course you can empathize with someone who's persecuted for not passing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the, The
2: Blade Runner setup is the perfect analog for this, where it's a sense of hunting down this micro difference and really holding people's feet to the fire, asking 50 questions, 60 questions in a row to get the answer. And then ultimately realizing that like, there's not that much difference between you and the people that you want to pick apart and determine their similarity or almost closeness to you. Parsimony is this concept in evolutionary biology where you trace back which common ancestor certain species have with the idea that ultimately we will be able to create a common ancestor tree that unites everything last back to like the original creature. And then parsimony itself means that it is the most probable way that that occurred. So it is the best mathematical output that we can find in terms of likelihood. And a lot of the time I feel like in this desire to categorize specifically the transgender patients that I work with, for example, people want so badly for cis and trans to be these offshoots of some common ancestor kind of person that used to exist before. As in, like, all this stuff is new. Back in my day, we just had people or whatever. But in reality, I mean, that is an artificial division. And there's so many artificial divisions that we create in order to police people and their bodies and how they behave. This also goes back to, I think, what we keep circling that Molly brought up initially is, like, in a lot of ways, the AI discussion is the safest possible space to be able to say,
1: well, who's not human? When we lean into this cultural acceptance of doing it with AI, we do open up spaces for people to do it for other demographics and populations. Mm-hmm. I think that I agree with you in that these discussions of AI are a sublimation. They're also happening alongside a continual resurgence and ebb and flow of these really concerning questions of how to categorize people.
0: This is why it's so stupid for the paradigm to be a convincing one instead of an accurate one if you place so much importance on an ai's ability to convince you that it is human then like so you're not actually looking at the substance of what this entity is offering if you're so caught up in making sure that a trans person can pass or even worse you know conversion therapy then you're erasing that person and all the substance they have to offer as an entity in the world the
2: witch huntingness of transness i think is like the perfect or, or the way that people engage with transness is the perfect vehicle for understanding this because I'm specifically thinking of cis black women who are runners and athletes in these different areas and then they're being unfemaled they, if that they could don't be a word. they don't
0: fit the taxonomy of what we've defined yeah. as a woman
2: even though it's like well literally like two minutes ago that was quote unquote enough that was convincing enough that metric is always shifting and there's always this sense that like, Well, we have it in mind. We have the answer that we want to hear in mind, but it's just not quite it. The refinement and attunement of AI and how subjective that is, and not subjective in the sense of like, yeah, we all get our say, but subjective in the sense that like the very few rich people in charge of this get to have their say is what makes it also disturbing because there's just nothing equitable about it. And the people that are being targeted the most specifically aren't getting a say. When we're having these conversations about AI looking at pictures of people of color and associating it with, like, really, really negative language, it's not like the answer to that is, oh, okay, like, let's get people who are going to help us refine this technology so that it doesn't do this anymore to do that. It's like, whoops, that's a bug. Let's have the same guys try and patch it. Um,
1: (laughs) Yeah, the same, like, extremely rich white tech bros. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, by proxy, like, and I mean, they're not even doing this coding. The coding is being done by people in the Philippines and Brazil and India and Pakistan at crazy fucking hours of the day. Uh, That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, the outsourcing. Like the labor itself is being outsourced. It's like the ideological boundaries are being set by these people. And it would be, which makes it even more sick, I think, in a way. It's like, oh, we can correct this. Zero input from the people actually affected. But they do the labor to quote unquote course correct.
1: Yeah. I mean it's all so fucking interconnected. Like when is it not well, so can I also just
0: on. say when I hear Sophia's response to Sophie's question right aloud, I gotta just be like bullshit. Agree yeah, well, I was yeah. like
2: true two on the nose. Like the, the people that help operate
0: <laughs> and monitor you, that was that was really right. which is not to be like not to be the thing I was just critiquing, where like you're not being convincing enough. But it's like
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of people have had that reaction to her and other kind of quote unquote AI influencers like Lil Michaela. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she was this, oh, it's so fucked up, this ethnically ambiguous, clearly uncanny AI influencer who was really just running on novelty. But she, you know, has a panel of faceless rich people determining her behaviors. So I think the way that gender and race play into AI gets really tricky and finicky when you consider them as commodities mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and that's why i think it's important for ai to not be anthropomorphized did i just say you it right? literally said yeah. that oh like, god like, beyond these human categories that we have. Because there is no phrenology for an AI. Like, we can't... <laughs> I just said her
0: head was lumpy. Okay, <laughs>
1: She can be the one that we... She can be our child of Omelas that, oh, no. that we punish. Um, but... And that's something that Donna Haraway, the, like theorist and writer talks about is how the idea of the cyborg collapses human and animal and physical and immaterial etc cetera, etc cetera. which I was going to read some Donna Haraway for this but then I started playing video games so mm-hmm. I'm sure <laughs> she be,
0: she'll be okay, she'll yeah, be okay.
1: Yeah. um and then kind of to wrap up my thoughts on the gender segment of this I wanted to read from kind of Arca's experiences so Arca is also a trans-feminine kind of experimental avant-garde musical artist. And I think she has some really interesting things to say in terms of AI and art. The first thing I want to mention is that she did... A remix album with ai actually she had an ai i don't know what oh. program produced a hundred remixes mm. of her song and i think that the fact that she had the ai produce such a large amount is in itself kind of a meta commentary on the saturation of music and of remixes and also the idea that she couldn't have a person do 100 remixes right oh that-
2: the album is literally 100 remixes mm-hmm. yeah that's killer.
1: Right? It, it's such an interesting kind of response to the limitations and the affordances of AI. And then she also did this interview with Glam Cult. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but I have a couple of quotes I want to go over here because she talks about a sound piece she did for the lobby of the MoMA where she used an AI generator. And she says specifically, I like to say that I collaborated with an AI. If you see AI as a tool you're not really respecting the possibility of AI to have a cognitive experience that's horizontal from you. I found use of the word horizontal to be really fundamental there. She had the AI set up to do these processes and they work alongside each other. It's not that she's using it as a tool to accomplish something, but that it's producing these outputs, and she's responding to them, and it's responding to her. And so the AI in the lobby did quite literally respond to people. It had a bunch of sensors that could detect movement and the amount of people in the room, and it would respond in different ways to them based on the sound and the music. Um, and so it kind of have this simulated emotional response to the music. Um, she wrote, there are lots of people in the room, so the music gets more hyper, and it's like a being or an entity that is stimulated by our presence. It's still alive and able to feel even when the museum is closed. We wanted to create an ecosystem where this intelligence could express itself." So I think it's in the same way that we discussed how AI can eliminate this opportunity to contemplate, it can also be used to provoke it. And I Mm -hmm. think that's kind of what ARCA seems to be doing here, is having an exploratory and curious experience with this AI room setup a shared experience of sensing the world um, yeah. and at no point is she trying to say that this is sentience or yeah. that she is the ai and i don't always agree with arca's ideology the transhumanist cyber element of it is sometimes lost on me just because that's not where i'm coming from but i did think it was important to consider
2: arco is reading that donna Haraway for
1: real yeah. i mean she talks about the collective body which Donna Haraway talks about with her tentacular theory. Horizontal
2: is really what I still keep going back to, and I like that. And this could just be the way that I'm interpreting it, but. Vertical makes me think like a parallel experience Mm -hmm. versus horizontal, as in different, entirely different plane, but you can intersect in a perpendicular way at a concrete moment in time. It's oblique. It's so oblique. (laughs) And like, (laughs) and that's why it's so fun. It's just the idea that the AI is doing its thing, you're coming in and collaborating, and your methods of communicating with the AI are also very limited.
0: She doesn't use it as a tool, and she also doesn't use it as something that she claims is sentient but i think she is using it as we talked about earlier as an infrastructure for human thought human interaction it's gathering this input from humans and then channeling it into what she calls an
1: ecosystem so yeah i don't know i'm into this yeah by being curious and exploratory i can kind of temper the massive anxiety i feel about yeah AI. Mm-hmm. Um, both for my field as a writer but just in general and how it interacts with information I think things like understanding how it works mechanically is really important. I found um, it to be so helpful. Yeah. yeah. To demystifying it. It's um, not
2: this big scary God computer. This shit is not the fucking Dune universe. Like Dooniverse. Dooniverse. Dooniverse, The Dune universe. The Duneverse. Well, like yeah, like Frank Herbert is not, you know, commenting and doing his mystical space Arab shit here. Like it is literally just a computer <laughs> yeah. of some kind. Wait, who's Frank Herbert? The author of Dune. Oh, okay, yes. okay, okay. Who's <laughs> some random bitch? Some <laughs> random bitch. Well, he's, he's my king,
1: start to make me feel so like doomer pilled <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's i think it's hard to interact with the idea of ai and not also be existential
2: <laughs> and that is a healthy anxiety to have i think like i don't want to be silicon valley pilled either yeah though. that's true you know and be like this is the future and anybody sitting the thing is the way people talk about ai is a lot like the way people talked about Bitcoin yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like i have such a healthy skepticism about it um and i mean all else aside i think this has made me appreciate how broad the world of ai technology is and ai can show you what shrek would look like if he was <laughs> an ancient egyptian god but it can also you know commit war crimes and that means that any discussions we have about it have to be deeply contextualized so i hope that we were able to put some of that nuance back in.
1: We are not the primary source you should consult. First of all, because we're not experts. Like well, These are all facts. But we, are, <laughs> I mean, but we <laughs> are people who want to contemplate. We are navel-gazing. And I think it's important to be overwhelmed by the sheer possibility of it. In the same way, like, a religious infrastructure is overwhelming and almost incomprehensible. Like, we have to understand that technology is basically the same and so i would not want anyone to feel like they have to base their opinions off of what we said and i i encourage like disagreement and discourse because then like we said earlier you're thinking you're not waiting for an automatic response of what you should say and how you should feel We're,
2: we're trying to bewilder
3: the host I We're hope,
1: so bewildering.
2: I hope yeah. you, you, the host,
1: feel bewildered right now. Don't stop
0: discoursing. Yeah. Don't stop. It's
3: okay, Arug and Gabe. <coughs> don't
1: worry. Arug. Why did it racially? <laughs> See, okay. This is our this is our case in point. Okay, I I do have to say, Aruge,
2: nobody spells their name like the way that I do. Really? It's not supposed to be a G.
1: Well, it is. It's still Arug,
2: but it's A-Rug. like. With, oh, did you do it with a G? I don't know. A rouge. Oh. <laughs> that was kind of like mean me doing my city, She's like it? seducing you. Go, Louise. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Sexy.
1: Well, we'll see you next time. Our gazers. Bye, gazers. <laughs> Bye, <laughs> gazers.
2: We love you. Yeah.